Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. As always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me is... Catherine! And we are here to throw another cinematic disaster onto the pile to see whether or not it is a failure piece, something worth revisiting, or a piece of something else. And this week on that chopping block is Underwater, the 2020, early, early 2020, pre-pandemic release, starring Kirsten Stewart and directed by William Eubank. Um, an interesting times. film. Different times. Yes. Um, it's a <laughs> it's a fuck you, it's January film in a year that ended up saying fuck you for the entire 12-month runtime. We didn't know how much we would need these movies. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting flick. Um, I, I I know we've chatted about it a little bit. I, I think we're gonna have a good discussion about it. Um, it's uh, a bit aliens. It's uh, got a little, little bit, bit of Jim. A little bit of abyss. Yeah, it's a little bit of alien, a little bit of abyss, a little bit of that Jim Cameron magic thrown on screen. Uh, a little bit less adeptly, but you go for the king. We, we, we feel the presence of the master. Yeah, definitely. I am unashamed uh, in my love of James Cameron. I just, I don't care. Oh, I'll, yeah. I even watch him sit in a submarine and go to the bottom of the ocean. For sure. <laughs> don't care. Uh, Cameron, regardless of what you think of him, obviously his his working life, his on set persona, the the films he produces are are not perfect by any stretch. Although I feel like many of them get pretty close. Um, not in that they're perfect across the board, but in terms of cinematic experiences, Jim Cameron can craft them like basically nobody else. Uh, and he has a, a fantastic career with very few misses to uh, sort of validate that. Uh, and when a single guy, a uh, single director, can have a couple of movies sitting at the top of the most successful movies of all time without the you know committee targeted research to the nth degree market segment of the Disney machine, you know, that's really the only thing that James Cameron is, is sort of fighting against at this point. And now Disney just did what Disney always does, which they just bought him. And now all of his Avatar movies are going to be Disney movies. Yeah. You know, so and they opened that's, a that's theme how park. you, how you get I it still don't understand that theme park. No. Maybe I never will. No. It, it started as a theme park that they insisted wasn't a zoo, but most definitely was a zoo. And then when nobody cared about it, they decided to slap Avatar on it, and it didn't get any better. It's just... So. Just a bad idea. Yeah, across the board. Um, mm. Ideas and ser- properties in search of ideas. That's that's what we've got down there at the old Disney World resort for families just like yours and mine. <laughs> um, but so before we get into underwater, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the other entertainment I've been been enjoying, and, and certainly if you have any too. Uh, the first thing I wanted to mention was. WandaVision. Uh, we are right in the middle of the first Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show. Uh, we haven't had anything like this before. We've certainly had the ABC Marvel shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and what have you, but those were really tangential to the MCU. You know, they, they touched upon each other. They certainly referenced each other. <laughs> but 
Um, it would be on each other. ABC is <laughs> always touching people, um, but they never really were integrated, right? They weren't part of the same whole. Uh, the ABC, you know, TV arm certainly operated in its own little world. Uh, really, it was the the Whedon brothers who were keeping the connections mostly alive, because the show was run by Joss Whedon's younger brother, what Jeb, Jed. I don't, I don't even remember. <laughs> Something like that. Um, but this is the actual, you know, Kevin Feige, MCU branded, MCU characters, MCU actors on TV. Um, and scuttlebutt around the people that I hang out with is they ain't digging it. Uh, not at all. The The setup is seems simple on the surface, but I think there is a much deeper thing going on. Uh, so if you haven't watched WandaVision yet, you might want to pause or, or skip forward and, uh, you know, sort of blow past this because I'm going to talk about the first three episodes. But the thing about it that most people know is that it is emulating older styles of television, right? Specifically, each episode so far has been inordinately tied to a popular piece of of uh, television from the 50s, 60s, and, and now 70s. So the first episode, people originally thought it was going to be a sort of I Love Lucy play, but it's really more of a Dick Van Dyke show play. Uh, even the set that they built out is, is basically the Dick Van Dyke set, at least the first season of the Dick Van Dyke show. The opening of the show references the Dick Van Dyke opening very specifically in a couple of key ways. And then, you know, it's the standard Dick Van Dyke setup. You know, the boss is coming over for dinner. I've got to get the promotion. Everything's got to go right. You know, blah, blah, blah. The second episode shifts gears, pushes forward about a decade into the sixties. And we get an episode that is much more focused on. There is a little bit of, I love Lucy in, in that episode, um, specifically with uh, the room with two beds, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we, we get a, a sort of different flavor of 60s, you know, family sitcom. And then in the 70s, we get this amalgamation of the Partridge family and the Brady Bunch, you know, a little bit of that. And finally sort of shift into to color. I guess there's some Donna Reed in there, too. Um, but it's it's really specifically referencing these TV shows, right? It's 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 built around the the visual cues. Uh, there's a laugh track over everything that starts off kind of feeling weird, but then just gets sinister because a lot of the things they laugh at aren't funny. Um, so it's so Big the, Bang Theory. <laughs> more purposeful than that. Like Big Bang Theory, yes, of course it has that. I find it very nefarious. Making me and, laugh at things that aren't funny, that's awful. But I agree. And... In this one, um, they they really get, they're really pushing into this very melancholic place, right? So Scarlet Witch, uh, presumably, as this show begins, it, it is post-endgame from, from what we can kind of tell. It's after the events of that, or at least close to it. And Scarlet Witch is... Uh, reunited with vision the first episode is about them sort of coming into their home after being married and the 
the thrust of it is that Scarlet Witch is seemingly somehow in control of this world, right? This television world, and it is extremely artificial. Uh, there are matte, you know, bad matte paintings in the background. There are, um, you know, really artificial stuff. You can see the wires hanging from stuff as she's floating things around the room. It, it's very intentional, very purposeful. And my my personal feeling on it is that you know, they establish in Age of Ultron that she was this little girl growing up in sort of the slums of Sokovia. And I think that the show is referencing the fact that she probably grew up watching reruns of American television shows. And so she has this idealized version of what American life and what the perfect existence is. And somehow, using her reality-warping powers, she has created a world for herself where she gets to have all the things that have been taken from her. Because obviously in Infinity War and Endgame, her, her sort of primary arc is that she loses Vision, who is the love of her life, or, or at least we're led to believe that, that he is. And so this show seems like her creating a scenario wherein they can be together. And that the things don't happen... The first line of the her first line in the show, because she's in the kitchen like bumbling around after you know in the in the morning, Vision walks into the room and she's like putting plates away using her magic powers and she hits him in the head with a plate and he's like oh my incredible wife and she's like oh my husband with his indestructible head you know laugh track laugh track, but one of the things that we know absolutely from Infinity War is that Vision's head is most definitely not indestructible and Thanos tore the mind gem out of it and killed him. So there's this weird, dark, sad undercurrent to everything that's happening on this show. That's supposed to be this upbeat sitcom. And at times things will break. Characters will kind of look at each other for a moment and say, you know, and, and get, seem like they're about to say something profound and then everything will just kind of unwind and everybody's happy again. And so there's this sort of deep melancholy to it that's very interesting. I've got to say Elizabeth Olsen is, is really good. Paul Bettany, of course, is fantastic. He's good in everything. Um, but just a, a really interesting premise for a show, but they're really only half-hour-long episodes and they release two to start and then one this week and I just don't think it's moving fast enough for people like there's not enough reveals got a pretty big one at the end of episode three this week um, that sort of contextualizes what's going on but it's still very up in the air mm. so far it's very cool the reproductions of the shows uh, the second one the second episode is really sort of built on bewitched right which makes a ton of sense given her powers and stuff and they have the, they actually have their own version of the animated opening of, Bewi of Bewitched. And, you know, it's got that sort of late 60s flair to it. Um, they, her and Vision do a magic act at a, like a local community fundraiser that is hilarious. Um, it, it's really solid. It's very interesting. I don't know if it's for everybody, but the thing that it's doing, at least I, what I believe it's doing, is it is setting up the multiverse. And this may be something that people are not going to be willing to get on board for. But Marvel has a very specific problem, and that is they've built a Marvel Cinematic Universe that is missing some really key elements of said universe, namely mutants and the X-Men. 
right? Like they have not been allowed in the Marvel universe up until this point, and they need to come up with some way to bring these characters into the world that makes sense. Because after all the world changing events of the last couple of movies, I don't think people are going to be okay with being like, oh, my name is Professor Charles Xavier. I was upstate in New York and I was just kind of sitting around and I didn't feel like helping. <laughs> yeah, that seems problematic sure. uh, to say the yeah. least. So, um, of course, you know, if you're a comic book fan, one of the last major arcs that Scarlet Witch was heavily involved in was House of M. And in that one, she changed the fabric of reality by declaring that there would be no more mutants. Right? She wiped mutants from the Marvel Universe. And, and then, of course, you know, they had to work to, to bring everybody back. I'm kind of thinking they're going to reverse that with this one, that she's going to create mutants. And if, if not create them, she's going to bring the realities together in such a way that a reality where the mutants exist will be brought into our reality. And that's, that's where we're going to get them from. Um, it is, it is interesting to note that the original release plan for this was that WandaVision was supposed to begin, have its run. And on the day that the last episode of WandaVision aired, that was supposed to be the release date for Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. So these two stories, I think those two stories were meant initially before COVID, before production shutdowns, before that film changed from Scott Derrickson to Sam Raimi, that the they these were supposed to dovetail. So it would be kind of interesting if Wanda is somehow supposed to fire off a multiverse event, something horrible, and then Doctor Strange has to kind of put things back together again, you know, heal the realities so that we can survive and in doing so sort of bring in things like the X-Men, the fantastic <laughs> Four, the Eternals, you know, whatever, you know, um, I don't know. It, it's, there are a lot of possibilities and I think, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes, but I, again, I, I don't know if it's going to be something that your average Marvel fan is going to be cool with. Cause we're getting weird now, right? Like, they, if you want to keep going with this stuff, you're going to have to get weird. And while the MCU has always been a little bit weird, we're now talking about a new, deeper level of weird. Comic book weird. Exactly. And comic book weird is hard. It's hard to pull off. Uh, if anybody can do it, Marvel can, but we'll see. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so WandaVision is, is pretty sweet. Certainly worth a try. Just the trip down memory lane uh, to see these these sorts of sitcoms brought back in. Uh, there's a next week, presumably, is the 80s episode. Um, there have been many pictures released online of Catherine Hahn in the full-on like 80s aerobic garb with the leg warmers and, and everything. Uh, so I presume we're going to get the family ties slash perfect strangers slash who knows. 80s sitcom treatment for the next one, which I'm excited about. Um, but uh, it's it's just it's kind of cool, right? It's it's really lovingly crafted, um, but with enough kind of interesting moments of strangeness that I, I think you know, for me as a Marvel fan, I'm, I'm it's enough to pull me along for right now. Well, I watched the uh, <clears throat> George Clooney film that's on Netflix now. 
Night Sky. Uh, it is. Yeah, I watched that one too. What did you think? Um, <laughs> interesting and interesting in execution. Sort of lovingly crafted. Ending kind of ruined it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. It's it felt like a film that might have been more warmly received in like two thousand three, before the sort of twisty sci-fi thing got ruined by Christopher Nolan. Not ruined, but you know, heavily utilized by <laughs> guys like ruined. Christopher Nolan. Um, because now you kind of expect that stuff. Uh, I guess you know. Sorry, spoilers for Midnight Sky. Uh, skip forward about. 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Um, the ending when it was revealed that the little girl wasn't really there, I was like, oh, no. I, I mean, I figured it out like, you know, 20 minutes before it happened. But when they actually, I was like, certainly they wouldn't. I, I you will know, tell you, I will tell you, I jokingly said <clears throat> when the little girl popped up, I was like, ah, she's a ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just... Well, and the name, because the mom very clearly says her name is Anna, mm-hmm. like very clearly says it. And then she says her name's Lily. She doesn't talk. So, I mean, like, oh, well, maybe he misinterpreted or something, but it was like, ugh. okay. And yeah. then uh, really just the the very end when it's like, well, David Oyewolo and, and uh, Jen Urso, I can't even think of her name, um, <laughs> Felicity Jones, I guess, uh, they're just going to head back to the, the mystery planet that we found and live. And I'm like, well, cool. You got, you got another 20 years or so. Congratulations. Like you're not preserving humanity. Like you're not going to keep the thing going. Uh, You've got your kid and that'll be the last generation of humans. So good on you. Ta-da. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, as, from an emotional standpoint, I guess it worked, you know, some emotional closure, but it, it just seemed like kind of a, oh, all right. You know, with all their discussions of a colony ship, you know, like, oh, the colony ship was supposed to take off. It was like, well, maybe that colony ship's like hanging up in orbit and, and they're all in stasis or something already. And, and, you know, they're, they're going to hook up to that and then go back to the planet and like humanity will be saved. I was like, nope. Everybody's dead. And a uh, couple of the people on this ship that could have preserved the human race, they're just going to go back down into the radiation and die because family, I guess. <sighs> I mean, there were some good moments for sure. I mean, you could tell Clooney was trying to, you know, do the gravity thing. There's a nice, there's a nice spacewalk that's shot well and, and of course ends in tragedy. But um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was not what I had hoped would be definitely made i mean you know, Clooney's a good filmmaker no argument there i just think it was sort of a weak story to begin with what about you i i agree it was <clears throat> i mean i like george Clooney. i i, I like i like everything that he does to some extent because i just mm-hmm. i just do um but this was kind of a struggle because it was fairly predictable i mean i felt like i I understood where the film was headed a little bit sooner than I would have liked. And then when it yeah. compiled on the, the cheesy sort of surprise mm-hmm. at the whole time, that was about when I, I, I was done with it. Um, 
mean, I'm glad I gave it a shot, but but yeah, yeah that was <laughs> that was about the only new thing that I've watched lately. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, the only other thing that I got into uh, with our, our HBO Max subscription is Snowpiercer, the television show on TNT. Um, obviously, we we both love the film. We've talked about it many times. Boon Jong-ho is, is incredible, and, and that movie is a masterpiece. The television show is not those things. I would is very... not suspect that it would be. I just don't. I don't think television show concept with Snowpiercer. It's it strains under the conceit um of being on a train. Uh and the the train is very inconsistent in the size of its cars and how much space there are, which I think they're they they try to establish that there's like a two level system to the train. There's like an upper deck where all like the people live and stuff and then there's like this underground like maintenance track that runs underneath the whole thing. So they, which makes no they, sense. Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. But, you know, quite literally, some cars are, you know, packed wall to wall. People can barely stand like three abreast. And then in other ones, there are like dance floors and, you know, balconies. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? Um, you know, and again, I'm sure there are story reasons for it. But just watching the show, it, it just sort of comes across as a little bit sloppy and disoriented. Um, and the show... Had a bunch of development problems. Uh, Scott Derrickson, the guy who left the second Doctor Strange movie, had also developed it and then shot the pilot with Josh Friedman, who has done many things, but most people probably know him from the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was fine. Like, it was an okay. I mean, it was one of the better Terminator things of the last 20 years, which isn't saying much. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> don't get too excited. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't lose your mind or anything, but it was, it was all right. But... That version of the show basically got shot down by TNT. They didn't want it, so they brought in somebody else to redo it. Derrickson left. Um, I remember reading an article. Uh, it stars David Diggs. He's the lead, which is, is great. I love Hamilton, and David Diggs is awesome. But I remember reading an article saying that basically he was playing a different character than the one he was hired to play. Like It was, it was that radical of a reinvention of the show. And... The the sort of core element, basically, you know, the the film starts with the revolution. Like the the film is the revolution, right? It's moving through the train cars to take over. But the essential sort of drive of that film is that rich people are bad, which is a central conceit of most of Boon Jong Ho's films. Is that rich people are bad? Because the problem. And because yeah, I mean, look at the world. Sorry, um, rich listeners. <laughs> uh, rich people are bad, and and this really wants to back away from that very quickly. So, what we have instead, is, at least for the first half of the season, is a, a murder mystery, and our main character is actually a former police detective who is in the tale and gets pulled up to you know the, the upper classes of the train in order to solve this murder, and. It it very quickly allows them to compartmentalize the the rich people into that. Well, some of the rich people are bad, right? You get to immediately say, well, yes, some of them, not all of them, some of them, because one of them has committed this this awful atrocity, you know. And it's fine, you know. It, it I never expected Snowpiercer to be envisioned as a like a police procedural, but that's certainly where they go with it. 
And then it ends up being the solving of that crime that kind of sparks the revolution. And the last few episodes are the the Tailies attempting to you know, take over the train. That sounds but the mi- <laughs> It's I, I kind of hate watched it for a good chunk. By the end of it, I was a little bit more on board once the, the revolution stuff started. Um, Jennifer Connelly is ostensibly the lead or co-lead with David Diggs. And, and the big conceit of the show, which is revealed at the end of the first episode, so I don't consider this a spoiler at all, and it's super obvious, is that there is no Mr. Wilford in this version of Snowpiercer. Mr. Wilford uh, was left behind when the train started, and instead the train is run by Jennifer Connelly's character, who is sort of like a a better version or, or a I'll, I'll, I'll say a more attractive version of the Tilda Swinton character from the film, from hospitality, the hospitality department. And so she's actually sort of shadow running the train. And then it's revealed, I think in that first episode as well, that she's the designer of the train, right? She's got like an MIT, sw- like, like there's this big thing at the end. She wears this, you know, business suit all day. And she goes back to the train, the, the front of it where the engineers are actually running the train. And she goes back into their little, you know, sleeping compartment and she like takes off all that, that stuff and then puts on like an MIT sweatshirt, right? So she's got all this engineering background and she's the one who invented the train and actually built the train. And then she had a falling out with Wilford over who was going to be on the train. And so, you know, Wilford didn't get on. And so she's in charge and it's, it's, you know, it's fine. It's like, okay. And then they kind of do some stuff with that towards the end of the season, but it's, it's very, it's very middle of the road. Like, I I think it's all right. I think it, it dodges some really significant potential social commentary to be more palatable, which I think is sort of a sort of disappointing. Um, And I didn't know TNT allowed nudity, but apparently they do. Yeah. I, if this show is any indication, there's at least a couple sequences where I was like, oh, hello. I was not expecting that. Ah. Uh, yeah. This is, this is interesting. There's a, there is a car. There is a, a aquarium car on the train. Uh-uh. <laughs> and, and there is a scene where a character dives down into the aquarium <laughs> to pick uh, things for a fresh sushi plate. I don't think and any of these people have ever been on a train. Um, it's, it, mm, I, I don't know. doesn't matter. <laughs> but when she swims down, she is, she's completely nude. I mean, and it's not like, you know, full frontal or anything, but it was like, oh, whoops. Okay. All right. Cool. then. You go TNT, you break those social rules. Uh, but yeah, so I, I've, I've been checking that out too. And it's, it's certainly been all right. Um, but I guess we really should move on to our feature presentation, and that, of course, is Underwater. Uh, so, had you ever seen Eubanks' other film, uh, The Signal? Um, <clears throat> I did. However, I fell asleep because I started it when I got in bed, and that was a mistake. But it was on Netflix for a little while. Or is it still? Yes. Uh, I think it might still be. It, it kind of came and went. Uh, I saw it on Netflix. It was another one of those like early days of Netflix uh, watches for me. Um, it's not a, not a perfect film, uh, really built around a, a sort of interesting sci-fi conceit, not unlike this one. Uh, ending is trailer. shaky. 
The trailer was very good. <laughs> it was yes. very intriguing, and then I it, the movie was just kind of meh, 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 meh. The Movie has a good opening. You know, it's these kids on a cross country road trip to take their friend to college. They get diverted by tracking down this like hacker that they've been jerking around with on the internet. Takes them to this weird location. Stuff happens. Might be aliens. Might not be. Wind up in a weird facility. And, you know, they're getting experimented on. There's stuff happening. Blah, blah, blah. Things kind of go from there. Very well executed. Interestingly done. Uh, especially for the budget, which was not extreme. And, um, you know, it's kind of cool. This is a cool little sci-fi thing. Um, the director of that is is who directed Underwater. This was his his next project. I guess not unlike our, our film from last week, New Mutants, it's worth noting that this film too sat on the shelf for a couple of years while the Disney-Fox merger was ironed out. This was actually shot in 2017 um, and, and then kind of fumbled around in post-production for a year and a half or so and then got shelved and then finally dumped in January of 2020 unceremoniously as Fox was getting ready to shut down. I guess it's worth noting this is the last film to have the 20th century fox moniker on it uh, everything released after this had 20th century studios once disney had the the fox acquisition so which is this weird the, and i don't like it yeah definitely um it's it's going to be a strange thing to uh, watch what happens to that brand but uh, i suppose we'll start seeing some of the additional fallout from that over the next few months um, but so this one too, uh, is, is a film that the studio had very little confidence in. And once Disney sort of got their hooks into it, they had very little confidence in it as well. Um, and in this case, in the new mutants, I, I kind of get it, I kind of understand that I, so a marketing department looking at new mutants and going like, what is this? What do we market? We can't market explosions. Uh, we can't market the demon bear cause that'll give away too much. So like, what do we, what do we sell people on? You know, I could see a marketing department really like thinking about that one. But this one, I don't understand why you would do that because it actually is a very easy sell, right? Underwater, Tense Danger, Kristen Stewart. You're good. Right? And I mean, I don't know action. what else you need to say. Yeah. I mean, but, um, you know, there's there's not really much in the way of big name stars other than Stewart's. Uh, Vincent Castle is in it, and he's he's very good as always. But like, you know, how many people are like, I loved the dude from Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, as a Westworld fan, I guess he was pretty good in season three of that. But but no. but at the same time, you know, you're you're calling on an, an audience that just doesn't represent most people. You know, we're talking about WandaVision not being very successful because it's just not. It's not appealing to a general audience. I can see how this film lacking stars meant that a lot of people just probably didn't give it a chance and, and wouldn't. And then you have COVID. Yeah, didn't help. Not yeah. at all. Um, so the disaster of this film is is pretty twofold, right? We've got the the studio delay, which dumped it in January, which is typically the month where you know January and September that's where the trash goes, right? We don't know what to do with these movies. We know they're not going to be successful. We did, we have to put them out to make something off of them, but we don't want to interfere with the bigger movies that we think will make money. So. 
put it in January when nobody gives a crap and nobody's going to see movies anyway. Put it in September, which is the weird in-between space between summer blockbusters and fall, like, you know, Academy Award, Oscar, Oscar bait. And so Underwater got the January treatment, and it made an okay amount of money for the type of film that it is and the relative lack of marketing that it received, uh, which, which was very minimal. In this case, it made uh, about 40 million worldwide on a, I, the budget on Wikipedia lists of 50 to 80. I've heard it targeted really right at about $65 million, which I'll go ahead and say right now, before we even get into the discussion, this movie looks very good given yeah. its budget. I uh, was shocked when I looked at that number. Yeah. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the, the, visuals of the film the cinematography which does leave a bit to be desired especially in the outdoor sequences but um the the set design the world building here very very well done for this level of budget right i mean this isn't prometheus where they just <laughs> threw 300 million dollars at the problem and built everything by hand and it's all bespoke and beautiful and you know, the Ridley Scott treatment. This is this is a little bit more gorilla, but in some ways it gets back to the roots of something like Alien that was very much kind of held together with, with duct tape and spit. Um, to it's, its a point. man in a rubber suit. That's, that's a very is. tall man in a very rubber suit. And that is okay. So not, not financially successful and, and unfortunately not very critically successful. Um, I watched this film without really knowing anything about it. I, I just knew, you know, there were so few releases in the first half of 2020 that I just kind of grabbed this one and was like, I want to check this out. And when I went to look up the reviews after the fact, I was I was quite legitimately shocked that they were as bad as they were. Uh, this is not a, a great film. I think we can go ahead and agree on that. Like, this is not a film that you know, is, is perfect or, you know, deserving of, of all the praise, but it whips a fair amount of ass and it's quite a bit of fun, uh, especially given what it sets out to do. And I, I was just legitimately shocked that people sort of reacted so negatively to it, especially amongst their, your sort of like top critics. Right. Uh, so this is on Rotten Tomatoes has a, a Rotten Tomatoes score of 47% right now, which is not crazy right we're not in the like 20 percent range but still that's that seems low the audience score is quite a bit higher only about three thousand verified ratings right now but 60 percent on the audience score so still in that kind of like middling range but critics were pretty harsh with this um the uh i pulled just a couple here because like a lot of the more recent films it's it seems like all the reviewers are kind of all talking about the same three or four basic things. They kind of picked their three or four core talking points and they just kind of threw all those out there. So um, a couple of these are reviewers that I really like and generally agree with, but I, I'm going to kind of diverge from them on this one. So the first one is Kevin Marr from uh, The Times UK. He says, it's the abyss meets aliens with a bit of the Poseidon adventure, a lot of Pacific Rim, and a dash of the Meg in this subaquatic sci-fi that offers nothing more than the sum of its references. Um, so a lot of films got thrown in there. Uh, we've Disagree already mentioned two Pacific of them. Rim. Disagree. Don't see that um, at all. 
you know, in that, you know, eventually it's revealed that there's some stuff going on under the ocean, perhaps. But yeah, the, most of the last half of those feel kind of glib. Um, the Meg specifically. I mean, The Meg is a very different class of film. Um, but Aliens and Abyss, sure, yes, very much so. I, I would say more the original Alien than Aliens, given the, the size of the cast and the, the relative level of peril that they find themselves in. But uh, this was the, the common thread, was the, the derivations of Underwater, right? This movie wears its inspirations on its sleeve, which you can either find sort of endearing, or you can obviously find grating. And, and many reviewers found it grating. Uh, so Mark Kermode from uh, BBC4, I think, uh, Kermode and Mayo's Film Review, he said very simply, it's not that bad, it's just not any good. Uh, which, you know, fair to Midland is, is, is his approach. Um, you know, it's, it's not a bad film. It's well made, but it doesn't do anything special. Which that's fair. Uh, Karen Hahn from Polygon, a diverting knockoff, but isn't as deep or as cohesive as its apparent inspirations. Um, again, fair. But again, you swing for Cameron, you're probably going to come up short. And the question is should we tell people to stop swinging for Cameron or should we take the people who are trying and continue supporting them so that they can continue to rise to the occasion potentially? Um, I don't think one person making one type of movie means that they're done making that type of movie forever. I no. think that if you want to make your movie, you should shoot your shot and you should be given a bit more of a chance than, well, I already saw a movie like this. <laughs> I just think that's such a lazy tactic. It's like, well, sure, we've all seen a movie like this. Right. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily bad to, especially in a genre that is as diverse, but yet well established as science fiction. Right. There are certain acceptable science fiction tropes that you're just going to kind of have to deal with if you're a sci-fi film fan. Um, and when people subvert them and try different things, that's wonderful and great, but that doesn't mean that the trope is now invalid. Yeah. Right. Does it, you know, just because James Cameron made aliens and it's a really great movie doesn't mean that nobody ever gets to make a sci-fi action film in space with soldiers and aliens. Right. Yeah. Like that doesn't, you can't just like invalidate it, even though that film is great. Right. And say like, oh, well, you can never have another one of these, obviously. So I, I'm kind of on the same page there. Uh, Glenn Kenny from The New York Times. It's a challenge to keep a action coherent and build suspense in a submerged environment simulated and underwater. But Eubank doesn't meet it instead falling back on stale shocks. Um, this one, I think there's some merit here, too. Uh, the scares, if we're going to call them that in this film or not necessarily original nor are they necessarily super memorable right i mean this is an alien where you know the guy gets his his face chewed off by a mouth within a mouth right and and that's okay right that's fine so it's again i get it but i don't necessarily think it's a deal breaker for enjoying a film like this um whether or not Eubank is able to, to sort of get where he needs to get with this film, I, I think we'll talk about and, and probably have some debate over. But um, I'm again, I'm just glad to see somebody trying at the very least. 
And then uh, the last one, and probably the most harsh, is uh, Peter Travers from Rolling Stone. A brazen knockoff that wants to be alien at sea. Instead, it's just all wet. Shot three years ago, this soggy horror show wastes Kristen Stewart as a wannabe Ripley and provides further proof that January is the month Hollywood uses to bury its mistakes. Dang. Yeah, pretty Tell rough. Tell us how you feel. And there were a few other people that felt that, that Stewart was kind of underutilized in this role. So the big problems I, that I, I noted, actually do agree with that. I think so. Yeah, there, there's certainly merit to that complaint. Um, Stewart has proven herself an incredibly capable actress, and she can certainly carry a film like this uh, without much difficulty. But she's not given a ton to work with here. Uh, this film, in, in terms of sci-fi actioners of its ilk, falls into the problem A leads to problem B, leads to problem C, leads to problem D, leads to the end. Um, and once that sequence starts, this film never really slows down to do much with its characters. Whereas, you know, the original Alien, which is the, the model for films like this, it, it had more time. It took more time. Uh, although I still think, in looking back, it's not as much as people give it credit for. Like the original yeah. Alien did not have an incredible series of sequences where characters are revealing, you know, their deepest, darkest I desires and wants like and wishes. I Alien was a smaller story, and this is a mm. bigger story. This is trying to tell a much larger event, <laughs> um, whereas Alien was was truckers. They, they were truckers in trouble, and they were in space. That was That was really it. So right. there wasn't a whole lot of revelatory material that had to, to take place in Alien, you know, no matter how lovingly I remember it. And Alien made the very smart choice early on to basically trick you into thinking that Tom Skerritt was the hero of the film and then pulled the rug out from under you 45 minutes in and now, oh no, it's, it's Sigourney Weaver. She's the hero of the film. And, and you're really this, not even sure you know, if she's going to survive. No, it, it, it threw everything into chaos and raised the tension. Whereas this one, we start with Stuart, we hang with Stuart, right? She's our heroine, she's our main character. So this is more like Ripley and Aliens than it is Ripley and Alien. Um, and, and again, that's fine. But she doesn't really get much to grow, which is one of the things that Cameron does. Although in watching Aliens in a modern sense, really all Cameron does to build her as a character is turn her into a mom, which is sort of his go-to. Yeah, I mean he for characterization of women, which is you know not a bad thing. But it's it fine. Some women are moms. Yeah. You know, I've got a mom myself. You know, me too. You know. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's. It's, but it's something, right? It's something, it's a vehicle for which you can build character and build connections. And, and Cameron is especially adept at doing that with very little screen time. And he would it. be the first to tell you that none of his characters are about reinventing characters. No, no. Cameron is a master of the stock character. And, and tweaking it just enough so that you don't quite remember that it's a stock character in the moment. That's it. It's a lovely little trick. Uh, and, Spielberg does it too. He and Bill Paxton just just made a life out of it together, and I I love all of their work of making him a stock character that you don't notice as a stock character. Yeah, he's just enough, right? 
so the common problems uh, noted in all the reviews I read for Underwater, it's derivative of better films, number one. Number two, a lot of people complained about cinematography. This is a dark film. Uh, it is shot high-key lights, directed very specifically. It, it feels like a real space. Again, very James Cameron. Light the space realistically and then build your shots around those realistic lighting cues um, rather than having you know movie lighting. And then uh, the sort of underutilization of Stuart. Those were the three biggest things that I saw. Uh, which were reflected in the, the reviews that I pulled. But so let's let's go ahead and get into the the breakdown of the film because I think it starts remarkably strong. Um, apart from the credit sequence, my gosh, this is the. <laughs> I do not like narrative dump credit sequences. Yes, and that is exactly what this is. And the crazy thing is, is that it is absolutely not necessary. Like I, I cannot express enough that narrative dump credit sequences 99% of the time are completely unnecessary to communicate what's going on in the story. You can do it much. We don't need to know most of this. So the, as the film opens, we get a whole bunch of like, you know, newspaper headlines and you know internal memos from the company that set Lots the of stuff evil up evil corporation paranoia evil corporation stuff Wayland yutani <laughs> and in essence establishing that our, our film is going to take place at the bottom of the mariana trench um which again if you took middle school geography you know is the <laughs> deepest point on the planet that we are currently aware of there's like nothing down there that we found but this movie no. says otherwise <laughs> yes so it's it's six miles underwater apparently there's some amazing resource down there and this company goes down there to build it they build a station down there called um kepler kepler station and they're down there drilling for stuff. And Unobtainium. Oops, wrong <laughs> Something, something. And the, the, the main thing that the, the credit sequence tries to bring up is that weird things have been happening, right? Strange occurrences, um, you know, stuff happening that the company can't explain and is just kind of shrugging off. And... It, I like that it establishes the geography of the station because that does become important as the film goes on. So, you know, I wouldn't have been, a, I would have been fine with like seeing the schematic diagrams of the the station and, and what it is, but all of the stuff about unexplained anomalies, people getting six, there's like, there's like PET scans. It's just all of these like really, really unnecessary, <laughs> like, Ooh, strange but things are happening. Cool. It looks like the opening of the X-Files, and that's what it's, we yeah. wanted. <laughs> that's right. It, it certainly has that feel. It reminds me a lot, if you've watched the the newest Godzilla movie or even um, the, the most recent Kong Skull Island, they do this exact same thing. They have this whole, like, redacted credit sequence where, you know, it's got all the black marks over the names and stuff, so you can't tell what it is because the government's known all along. And it's it's just that. And it's short. I mean, it's if it had been another 20 seconds, I, I, I would have been like, this is intolerable. 
Um, Please stop doing this to me. Yeah, just like stop it. it. Just cut it out. You don't have to do this. And but then once the film finally starts, once the the dumbass credit sequence ends, we we get this long single take push down to the station itself, which actually is pretty cool. But here you, you get a taste of how this film is going to treat its underwater photography, which is everything is dark and and lit by just exterior lighting, right? Um, which is entirely appropriate. There is no light at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. It's six miles down. There's nothing down there. So it's not going to be bright. This would have been an interesting challenge. Because I'm, okay, I, my James, I, I know we can't, always talk about James Cameron for the entire discussion. But yeah. <clears throat> but I am I'm a certified James Cameron satanic lore geek. Um mm-hmm. and I mean recall what he did to make the wreckage look visually appealing on film. He lit it like a filmmaker. And with computers you're not limited to how you can film an actual shipwreck. So I just don't understand leaning on, well, it's dark under the water, so we'll just make it dark. We right. can do more. We can, we can yes. actually do anything with computers if, if we it's want. It's true. And, you know, the, the station being sort of lit from within with, like, minimal exterior lighting it seems like a real choice and, and one that apparently a lot of people did not react positively to. I'm kind of okay with it. It certainly gives it a sort of dark undertone right as we come into the station. But, but it is, is kind of lazy. It's, it's a bit lazy. Um, and it could be to hide special effects that they didn't have much budget for. Right. I mean, building a, an underwater station, you know, you're not looking at, I mean, this isn't like CG face replacement or anything, but you're still you're going to spend some change and doing something like this might have allowed them to hide some of the rougher edges, which you know, is certainly a possibility. But then we, we zoom inside the station and we get. Again, a film that is wearing its inspirations on its sleeve, and so we get some long. Really sort of like tripoded off camera shots of the camera just sort of spinning. Uh, and we get a bunch of long, dimly lit hallways sort of blinking in and out of life. And and this, of course, is is very opening of Alien, right? Uh, both of the Alien, uh, the early Alien films, I should say, Alien and Aliens, open once they really get going, I should say, with these sort of slow, careful, what we many times we just call B-roll footage of the locations, right? The ships. And so Aliens opening is, of course, super iconic. We're just kind of going around and looking at all the places that we're eventually going to see people working in the ship, the doors, the hallways, the the hypersleep chambers. And we get something very similar here, just these long hallways in this, this mining facility and just these slow panning shots sort of, you know, establishing the world. It doesn't quite have the same effective tension that alien does but it you can tell that that's what it's going for it's not quite there though no and that could be the subtitle of this film underwater but not quite there right (laughs) like that's that's sort of what we've got but it's it's establishing the world it's dingy it's dirty 
The lights keep kind of flipping on and off. Uh, there's distant rumbling in the background. And then we finally settle in on, on Case Stu herself. Uh, in a morning routine, a bedtime routine, don't know. A routine. But, uh, <laughs> she's brushing her teeth. And we get some voiceover, which again, feels a bit lazy. Um, the, this feels like something added after the fact to try and justify a very long and wordless opening sequence. Because I don't really know what she's talking about. She talks about being underwater for a long time and sort of how that changes your perspective. You know, you lose track of time. Are you dreaming? Are you awake? Are you something else? You don't else? know what she's talking about because she mentions it here and then never mentions it again. So we don't really <laughs> ever learn what she's talking about. Right. Uh, she's referencing a relationship. Uh, I remember the first thing that he said to me, uh, which does come back a little bit later. She does have a conversation with really the only other female character in the film um, where they're talking about, you know, their, their love lives. And she kind of hints at a, a lost love of kind of a kind, but it's, it's just so backgrounded and, and so not the point of this film that I kind of wish that we had just sort of gotten straight to it. Um, because as the rumbling continues, like the, the medicine cabinet doors are popping open, the lights continue to flip on and off and, she notices something is wrong, but she's just kind of continuing on. Then she gets John McClaned. Uh, so uh, one of the things that uh, this film establishes is at least for the first chunk of the movie is she is barefoot, right? She's yeah. putting her shoes on when all of this goes down, which again, it's wearing its inspirations on its sleeve. It's still an effective thing to, put your character in a weakened state because they don't have appropriate footwear. Uh, I, I like it. I think it's fine, but uh, you know, for some people it's probably going to be a little bit too much. Um, but what do you think of this, this opening sequence? I sort of thought that the voiceover threw me off. I don't like those kinds of voiceovers anyway. I I just have been turned off of any kind of voiceover that feels pointless and intrusive ever since I heard David, I think it was David Fincher talking about how to use voiceovers. And I don't know, just something about it really threw me off because I'm like, this is pointless. It adds nothing. However, when yeah. the action gets started, it's kind of fantastic. It's very frantic. It's very... It's very exciting. I almost forget that I have no idea what's going on. Like I've not, I don't, I don't know these people yet, um, and I'm willing to forgive it because it moves fast enough that I just, I don't care. Um, yeah, totally. I do, and I love Kristen Stewart. She looks great in this movie. I love her hair. It is a very cool look. Yeah. Um, I love the wardrobe. I, I kind of, I love just the look of this place. I was sort of sad that the movie does move so swiftly away from it that I don't get to enjoy very much of this facility. I would have liked to have seen more of the inside. But again, you know, budget, you might have might have had one hallway to work with. Um, so I understand if we didn't get to see as much of it as I would have liked. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that it was just a single hall hallway set, and then they just stitched the, the scene, stitched them together as they were doing the rotation. 
um, at the opening to establish it because then they, they blow them up very quickly. So in essence, the, the rumbling that Stuart's been hearing results in a, a pressure breach in uh, the hall in, in the facility and the hallways just collapse, which is a really great effect. If it was done practically, Oh my God, it, it looks kind of like a, a bit of a, a set. Um, and it looks a little bit like a model sort of blended together at times, but this entire set and sequence I think was just awesome. And I would have loved the, the film to just straight up open like this, right? Kill yeah. the voiceover narration. We don't need that. She's brushing her teeth, low rumble shit hits the fan. Just go. Um, because really that's that's what we're building towards, right? Um, but you know, somebody told you of... bank that you have to have character moments, so you know Well, a good character moment and something that would have felt a little bit more in keeping with the, the movie's illusions would be yeah. her at her locker going through her things, her routine, and there's pictures of this relationship. There's sure. reminders. You know, James Cameron was sort of, I'm again, I'm talking about him again, damn it. Um, but the thing that makes his, his character so memorable is that he does just little texture things. He doesn't necessarily have, like you said, those big reveals or conversations. It's more a character looks longingly at a photograph for just a couple seconds and mm -hmm. that's it. <laughs> Um, right. But it manages to be enough in the context of a very swift moving action sequence. And I think that just would have been more interesting than, than how they opened. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, there's, there's certainly room here that things could improve, but so once everything collapses, we get a lot of really good sort of speed ratcheted actions. Stuart just sort of sprinting at high speed, trying to get to a pressure door that she can seal um, another person was up and awake, uh, a guy that we'll come to know is named Rodrigo. He is some kind of technician and he was working on something and they are both able to make it to the pressure door, but the controls are seized. And so I, I like this kind of thing very much. They're establishing Stuart very quickly as being capable. Um, she's an engineer. She's got training. It, it's again, very Ripley-esque. Right, somebody that knows what they're doing. She's a professional. She has skills. She's capable, and and doing so not by having a character tell us these things, but by seeing her in action. Right, taking action. Right, this is very much the Ripley, you know, insisting that the quarantine be maintained kind of things. Like, no, this is what we must do. You know, you're, you're telling us a lot about Stuart with this this you know quick sequence because she tears the door apart. She fixes it. Is it ready to close? There are people trying to get to them, but they can't make it. So she that was very sad. That was a very, very effective moment um, with the people trying to get to her. That was that was good. Yeah, I think one of the things in talking about Stuart's character, one of the things that's established very quickly is that she kind of knows everybody, right? She's been down here a while, and you know, whenever they find a body, which is something they do, you know, fairly quickly. She knows who they are. They, she obviously had some kind of, you know, maybe minimal, but still relationship with them. And she really does a great job at, at expressing emotion. Very, you know, obviously it's very you know, sort of compartmentalized emotion, but expressing emotion about, you know, seeing the state of these people, right? There's nobody expendable down here, uh, which I think is a cool choice. And, and again, helps us understand her commitment, right? Just as, 
Cameron attempts to establish Ripley by her relationship with Newt. We, we sort of see Nora's relationship with the rest of the crew and, and we sort of understand her, you know, core motivations to try and help. So they're able to seal the pressure door. We do get some good special effects sequences on the outside of seeing the place kind of collapse and sink. And then there's a kind of pressure explosion, uh, which I'm not sure exactly how that would work, but it's a nice moment. She gets kind of blown back. They both do and, and wake up a few minutes later. We do get the nice die hard. Her feet are all torn up and bloody and she's, she's kind of limping, you know, just like McLean after his run in with the, Hans Gruber and the, the cubicles of glass, whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, she wraps her feet up with some ace bandages, just as some you know, sort of basic shoes. So the production design in this film, in my personal opinion, is fantastic. I, I think it looks great. I think it feels like a real space. Um, you know, I, I've never been in an underwater research slash mining facility, but this certainly feels realistically and plausibly like one of those. I like um, that everything was sort of leaky even before the disaster. Um, yeah, it wasn't pristine. Not at all. Very Nostromo-esque in that way. Um, it's, it's good because that makes it feel lived in. And, and, you know, the water dripping from the ceiling and stuff. And everything's, the bathroom, everything's like blue tile, looks very 70s, you know, yeah. just that kind of stuff. Just very clever. Little touches that, that sort of ground it. Um, I especially like they eventually get to sort of server room. And, and I like that they're actual server blades, like real ones, <laughs> or at least very similar to, to real world server blades. You know, you kind of slide the whole thing out, flip the mm-hmm. screen up, and you've got your, your access to it right there. Um, it's, it's good. And I, I love how absolutely jacked up Nora is right off the start, right? She's like bleeding from her ear um, and, you know, really messed up. I, I like films, action films that let their protagonists get dirty, right? This isn't rock, the rock in San Andreas where he just looks pristine for the whole thing. Maybe it's a little dirt on his face. Um, you know, these characters look like people who are dealing with something that is very definitely going to kill them if they yeah. go do something about it. And that's really good. But yeah, just the water everywhere. This must have been a nightmare to film because there's just water everywhere. And I, I've always heard that water on a film set is just the worst because it doesn't go anywhere. Right? It just sits in tanks and smells bad and <laughs> gets warm and, and gross. Um, <laughs> apparently the sets in the It films... Uh, those sewer sets. They were all indoors in some like super hot warehouse and the water was just rank after like the first two days. And, you know, so I, I can I, imagine that it was I guess wasn't... it put everyone in the right mood. Exactly, right? It's the kind of feeling you want for a film like it. Um, so there are lots of shots. Um, Rodrigo and Nora are attempting. They, they discover that there should be some evacuation pods still available in another section of the facility. So they start sort of traveling through these broken down corridors in an attempt to, to reach that location. And again, it's just really, really impeccable design, tight areas, simply put, you know, it, it's simple arrangements. They're not doing anything really complex here, but they're doing a good job of making it feel like real spaces. Uh, so as they're making the trip, we get introduced to our third character, um, 
Paul. Is that yes. his name? I think it's Paul. Um, and Paul, unfortunately, is played by T.J. Miller. Again, this was filmed three years ago. This is pre-T.J. Miller career self-destruction moment. Um, Pre-T.J. Miller, what do you do? Threaten to bomb a bus? Uh, that is weird. Yeah, I mean, he's always been weird, but uh, things took a hard left turn to, uh, oh, oh my God, weird. <laughs> No, but uh, so he got dumped here in this uh, Fuck You, It's January film, and uh, he plays Paul, another, I, I guess, engineer. I, I don't remember his job, something along those lines. Um, but he's our comedic relief character. Right? We've I realize, hate this character. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got to realize that all of these characters are fitting very, very cleanly into the the action film roles that I would say James Cameron solidified in the 1980s. Uh, in his work, right? We've got the uh, the comedic relief guy. We've got the the strong uh, female lead. We've got the uh, capable but quiet who will probably end up sacrificing himself. Secondary character. We've got uh, eventually the the younger, less confident female character that is is feeding off of the stronger female character. Right, there's like all of the, we've seen all these things before, right? There's there's no fresh ground being broken with these characters. They are designed purposefully to mix in specific ways. And so TJ Miller is at the time that this was made was probably the perfect choice for a character like this. I believe the second or third line that he utters is what is it? Oh, my flat-chested elfin savior yeah. or something along those I lines. but that pretty much quickly establishes the kind of thing we're in for here uh he later comments on how much he loves anime with another character um it's one of those things where it would have been nice if this film had had the budget to just kevin spacey him right just rotoscope him out put somebody else in his place and pretend like he had never been cast (laughs) but i have not i have a lot of of feelings about this character and the screen time that they give him. Um, and I do wish that, that he were not in the film entirely. And I'll, I'll come back to that. But yes, this is my least favorite character, and I hate pretty much everything that he says. Yeah, he's he's a little bit playing his character from Cloverfield, uh, which is a similar film in tone for at least a good chunk of this. And much like in Cloverfield, it doesn't work here either. Um, so they they meet up with him. He was obviously like sleeping. He's got like a sleep mask on, um, but was able to survive. And that's when they find the the first dead body. Uh, I think his name is McClellan. And and Nora very carefully and gingerly sort of moves the body out of the way so they can get by. And and again, it's. Stuart trying to do some some touching, nice moments here, uh, even though there's really nothing to be done. Uh, so they arrive at their destination. Again, this is very much a point A to point B to point C sort of film. They're, they're following very specific tracks. And they realize that all of these escape pods are gone, and the only person remaining is the captain, who has presumably decided to go down with the ship, uh, so to speak, uh, down with the station. I guess. So this is uh, Vincent Castle playing the captain. Uh, and he is, is 
excellent as always, right? Again, there's, there's not a lot here. He's the captain, so he's supposed to be confident. He's supposed to be capable. But at the same time, he, he does seem to genuinely know and care about these individuals and, the, and his crew. Um, Nora is, is surprised that he didn't, that he didn't escape when he got the chance. And then we get a little bit of that sort of relationship backgrounding work that this film does take the time to do. Uh, and Nora indicates that the captain has a child. So he should have gone up to the surface in order to make sure that he could, um, you know, be with her. I think a bit of this is also supposed to reflect back on Nora, that she is down here. She probably has people who care about her up at the surface, but she doesn't seem especially concerned about getting back to them. Uh, she does have that necklace around her her neck that's kind of stuck in her sports bra that she keeps touching to make sure that it's still there. Uh, I know we do get a reveal on that towards the end, but this this all seems to sort of circulate around the fact that Nora is is detached from or perhaps estranged from the important people in her life. And she kind of can't understand how somebody who has a ostensibly a good relationship with somebody in their life wouldn't have gone back to the surface to be with them. But we find out later that, you know, that relationship's not as solid as Nora thinks it is. So there are a few other survivors. Um, what is it? Emily and Smith, I guess. Um, something like that. And, and they're all, they've also survived and they're kind of monitoring comms and attempting to sort of make contact with people. It's again, we're building out our cast of characters. We don't get a ton of information about them, but you know, we, we do kind of need more people here, right? Uh, people die in movies like this. I don't know if you're familiar, right? People wind up getting killed and you kind of have to have people around in order to kill them. And yes. these are characters that could potentially fall into that, that, that group. Uh, the, Kind of don't, but we think so, and that's important. So the first problem was getting to the escape pods. That problem has been solved. There are no more escape pods. So now we get the next problem, which is that the cooling towers that are keeping the station from, I guess, exploding uh, are out, and they need to either fix them or they need to get out of there as quickly as possible uh, before things go even somehow worse. It's very pretty, Bishop, but what do you look like? Right. It's, it's a, again, this is a standard sci-fi action movie trope. Thing is wrong. We see this in Sunshine. We see this in Aliens. We see this in Alien, right? Um, but even like bad sci-fi action movies, this is the kind of stuff that happens, right? Yeah. This is, this is Resident Evil the red queen showing you the inside the base and, Oh, this thing's about to explode. You need to go turn it off. It's, it's that stuff. So they, they have to go on their next, um, adventure, which is to walk across the surface of the Mariana trench, the bottom of the lowest point in the ocean and head to an exploration facility, something, you know, that's, that's close by, so that they can, you know, get out, right? Find the place to, uh, there's another station that I think has more escape pods or something. 
and and they you know it's the only plan it's a bad plan obviously <laughs> you know? yeah it's not um, gonna work it's it's a bad plan it's a real bad plan and you know everybody is is just against it the captain is the only one that seems to think that it's the you know the best option and I like that Nora says, I just need you to admit that we might die doing this, right? I, I need you to not be so gung-ho and say, like, everything's going to be fine. I need you to just tell me, yes, we can probably die. Then they listen to the last transmission from the drill site. Uh, and, you know, like sci-fi action horror films from the past... Uh, maybe a little event horizon here, you know, a little bit of, uh, what is it? Uh, <laughs> Liberate. Toteme. Toteme. Ex and Ferris, right? Thank Rescue you. me from hell. Uh, Liberate Toteme, Ex and Ferris. Uh, thank you, Jason Isaacs, for bringing that into my life. Um, I, uh, a couple of things going on here that I think are really good. One these are people operating on limited information. I, I like that. I like when characters don't fully know what's going on and have to make decisions based on the evidence that they have. So these characters don't really know what happened. They think it was some kind of earthquake, perhaps causing caused by the drill. But at this point, given their limited range of options, they're just sort of brushing past what the root cause of this is. It doesn't really matter. We've just got to get out. We have to get somewhere. So we get some really nicely designed underwater spacesuits, basically. And I, I, I like the look of these things. They feel very realistic. They feel very natural as an extension of the sort of underwater suits that we already have. You know, somebody did their homework. And they very quickly established that uh, one of the characters... Um, Emily, I guess she has like little to no experience doing this. She's like an intern or something. She's, she's never done anything like this before. Right. And so she is, is freaked out. And then Rodrigo, our good friend, he notices that one of the helmets is, is damaged, right? It's got a crack in it. And we see him note the crack. And then he hands one of the helmets to, uh, Nora and we we think maybe for a moment that he might have just you know sent Nora to her her doom but uh, of course that's that's not what's happening so this feels a lot like the abyss um you know they're they're certainly treading the same ground here you know in the abyss the underwater suits were very difficult to get into they're you know harnessed up and getting you know dropped onto you with cranes and all this different stuff because they were so heavy and, and so I, I love all that kind of stuff. They've got some kind of like rebreather system that they can use all this different stuff. And it's, it's just nice. Like they're, they're cool suits. They're put on. Well, it, it certainly feels a bit aliens. It feels a bit abyss. Uh, but again, it's fine. Like trying to do the James Cameron thing is not bad in my, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's copying. It feels like it's just doing, you know, you can, right. You can participate without just copying. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a direct copy. The film is definitely trying to do its own thing, um, but it, it knows what its roots are and it knows the effectiveness of 
deploying those routes efficiently. And that's really what they've decided to do. Uh, I will say the scene is nearly spoiled by TJ Miller's antics. Uh, he has like really old ratty underwear on. He keeps blowing bubbles. He turns music on for the sequence. It's just. Um, the music was <clears throat> terrible. That was just, that was awful. I don't know why that happened. I would just like to raise this character from the dead. Yeah, it, he doesn't really serve much purpose, uh, but he does get a good death here in a little bit. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, so there's a lot of tension being built here, right? We get a little bit of time with the characters to see them adjusting to the idea of what they're about to do. Uh, the other like communications guy that kind of has a crush on the research assistant is trying to encourage her, telling her, you know, we'll be there together. Everything's going to be fine, etc. And it, and it works, right? It's it, again, these are, these are, we've seen these things before. And if you have no tolerance for seeing things like things you've seen before, then this movie will probably piss you off. But if you get suitably engaged with what these characters are going through, there's, there's actually a lot to enjoy at this point, especially from this sequence moving forward. Um, this is a really swift film, right? It is rare that we can say that a, a film released in 2020 has a runtime under 100 minutes with credits. I love how short this movie is. That is yeah. probably my favorite thing about it because it's not asking me to sacrifice a tremendous amount of time to just enjoy it and connect with it. And I feel like it was easier to engage with the film than some films that may be better and longer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's lean, right? It's All the fat has been removed. There's really nothing much extra maybe a couple of snippets of conversation that we could drop maybe a little bit here and there but i don't think you could do much less to tell this story and and that's refreshing right that is not necessarily something we see now i mean most of the time a two-hour runtime for a film is absolutely completely normal and and to have something that's quite frankly, a little bit more like an 80s action film, right? It's easy to forget that most action movies in the 1980s and 90s were that, you know, 100 minute mark or less. It's it's kind of easy to forget how refreshing that can be. Um, so they get the suits on, they go down. As they are going down, they realize that Rodrigo's suit is compromised and Nora attempts to stop them from depressurizing once she realizes what's happening, but it happens too late and he explodes, which is wow. a fantastic effect. Like yeah. just stellar. I've seen movies try to do this, right? I've seen deep star six. I've seen Leviathan. I've seen the abyss. Uh, the abyss has a really great um, like Rover decompression, you know, destruction moment where like a whole ship gets that happening to it but we've never I, i've never seen it on like the suit level and man that was just super effective the sound effects are great it's it you know just super well done it's it's heart-wrenching because rodrigo's been one of the more interesting you know characters this feels like a very specific attempt on their part to throw the audience off right like you probably thought emily was going to be the one to die but now it's it's we Rodrigo. T.J. You know. Miller would die. Exactly. Um, we do get a good shot of his barrettes in the next 
in the yeah. next shot because he's just he's very he's very cool very very down he's quirky he's a quirky guy um but so the the rodrigo suit decompression sequences is just fantastic um and then they they go deeper into the the facility they they go down this cargo lift take them even further down um they're able to sort of take their suits off for a little bit while they're riding it down and you know we get some more murky CG outdoor stuff, which you, you know again take it or leave it. It's it is what it is in terms of this film, I guess. But everybody's just trying to reconcile with what they've just seen of of seeing somebody die, and you know we get a couple of people who are, you know, sharing stories back and forth. And Stuart, what do we get from Stuart? Picture of her looking. Uh, the shot of her looking at a picture longingly, right? Yeah. James Cameron style. Uh, her and, and some guy uh, just, you know, in the past somewhere. It's obviously a long time ago. Her hair is very different and, and uh, you know, they're obviously on the surface together. And, and there is some, some pain here, right? There's, it seems like this, this film decided that its characters would all have a at least the central characters, Nora and, and the captain and a little bit of Emily and, and you know, the, the communications guy, whatever his name is, Liam. I don't know. Um, we do get a, a little sort of understanding that they're all down here because they, they made a mistake, right? Or, or well, something like, messed it, up in their lives. It's the idea that nobody would volunteer for this unless they were trying to get away from something else. Exactly. So as they go down, they get a distress signal from one of the escape pods, I guess. It's um, stopped on one of the platforms below them, and they decide, you know, hey, it could be a survivor. We have to check and see. Um, nobody really seems cool with suiting up to go check, but they realize <laughs> that they kind of they kind of need to, or at least should try. Um, which, again, feels a little bit like the, the salty space marines and aliens being like, I don't want to do that job. I guess I do that job, you know? I guess I just wondered, <clears throat> you know, how practical it would be in this situation that they would mount rescue efforts at all. I guess I, yeah. I was questioning, like, well, if this facility existed, you would sort of go into it understanding that if something goes wrong, you're dead. <laughs> I feel like you're gonna die. Right. Um, so I didn't really understand that. I, I didn't buy that. But it, again, it set up, you know, a nice little action sequence. So I didn't really argue with it much. Um, but it felt like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's they're in such dire circumstances, such dire predicament that a, you know, if there is another survivor, yes, it would be good to save them. But at the same moment, I mean, what are you saving them into? Right. You're getting ready to walk across the bottom of the Mariana Trench on the, the false hope that you might be able to get to one of the other facilities and get to the surface, which again, it's like, it's the only plane you have. It's completely understandable, but is that really something you want to bring another person into? It's not a plan. <laughs> it's, it's barely a plan. Emily starts asking questions of the captain about his family. Uh, he sort of begrudgingly, she sort of, begrudgingly starts he begrudgingly starts sort of giving details 
but he starts getting the details wrong, right? So Nora has here, we get a little bit of history. She's been working with the captain for a while. And she captain's like, Oh, she's like 14, my daughter. And Nora's like, no, she's not. She's got to be my age, right? There's no way she's 14. And, and so either something's going wrong with the captain or he's not as close to his family as, as he's led people to believe. And, and both are, you know, options. Of course, Emily's only connection point with things that you care about is she's got a dog. She's got a corgi. Um, which, you know, they kind of shake off. I, I think it's actually meant to be very sincere because, you know, fur babies are a thing. But uh, Nora, Nora and the captain don't necessarily seem impressed with her, <laughs> her corgi situation. But uh, it does give her a moment of endearment, right? So the people who said that there were no attempts to sort of create characters here, I, I think that's a bit disingenuous. However, it, it certainly is minimal, right? Yeah. Um, this is a, a plot-heavy film that is absolutely trying to tell a specific story in a specific sequence. Um, and, and it's not really slowing down for character beats. If they filmed them, they didn't include them. And they just kind of kept things going. Yeah, whatever happened accidentally on screen can stay, but eh, so much for anything right. else. Yeah. Some stuff we kind of need to keep just to keep the plot moving along. But otherwise, we, we got to get going. So then we get the rescue sequence, which, as you said, is actually pretty good. Um, there's some cool lighting going on here with the suits. Um, they, they kind of do the... Again, I mean, man, we just keep talking about James Cam James Cameron, but they kind of do the Jim Cameron thing where we've got the helmet cams and, and just the single directional light coming off of that, which would, would, in most circumstances, be probably the way something like that would be designed. And so we get some nice, you know, sort of like really cool, bright, uh, bright lights on on our characters as they're looking back and forth at each other. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. I think one of these skate pods got tangled in some cabling or something. And that's what the, the signal was that they were getting to. But as they get closer, there's something on it, right? Some kind of um, you know, what, what, almost what looks like sort of like sea slime, some kind some of like, like jellyfish. Algae or something. Yeah, it almost looks like, you know, like pieces of jellyfish, um, you know, that kind of underwater visual. I think Emily says algae as well, something along those lines. So they're, they're kind of taking note of, of this stuff and how it's, it's all over everything. And it's it's basically the the thing is empty. Isn't this immediately when Kristen Stewart's like, bring them back. They need to come back now. They need to stop. Everyone stop. Come back. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they say, like, there's no body here. They do find a wallet with, like, another family picture in it. So, you know, Nora either recognizes the person or at least knows, um, you know, there's there's no there's no rescue that's going to happen here, right? There's no, there's no happy ending waiting. And, and then, yeah, she starts like basically saying like, don't check it out. Don't look for anything else. Just come back. It's, it's not important. Just forget it. Just, just come on back. Yeah. It's just, um, but I loved that, that the captain joined in and agreed with her and then was like, yeah, guys, just, just forget it. Just forget it. Yeah. Come on back. Yeah. I like it's, this for me is, is a bit of a, is is a bit of a, a genre shift, right? Like this is not what you would expect in that you've got these characters who are basically saying, no, 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 screw the rescue. Forget that stuff. We need to get the hell out of here. Um, you always have characters voicing that, 
I kind um, of felt like this came directly for Prometheus and the stupid biologist. You know, like, it dude, don't touch yeah. it. Just don't touch it. Right. Like you need <laughs> to cut it out. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, you know, I wonder how the reception of films like Prometheus and Alien Covenant would have been if they had gotten some of those like fundamental human reactions to weird shit right. So much because better. that's really the thing that people harp on the most. And I, I get it. I understand it. But, uh, you know, it does make a certain amount of sense. Like, why would this this biologist, this person who understands how alien worlds can kill you instantly play with something so potentially dangerous? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's refreshing to have a character just be like, no, no, and not and not the side character. Right. Like you would expect the TJ Miller character to be the one that's like, oh no, F the yeah. F this bra and then like take Your off. Hudson. But it he's the one that keeps pushing. He's like, no, I want to see what this is. And it's it's our our main character, our voice of reason that gets to be the one that's like, no, 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 no. no we're 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 getting out of here. Just forget it. So this, they go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say the scene plays out the way that we want the scene in aliens between Ripley and Dorman to play out, and he doesn't pull the team out. Um, yes. So kind of a little joke on James Cameron. There you go. They did one yeah. thing better. <laughs> Got one up on him. <laughs> so it's in essence what they do discover though as as they're attempting to figure out what happened to this person in the escape pod, they do find a strange creature. Right? It's very sort of face not not face huggery. It's really more the chestburster look. It's an eldritch horror. Yeah, um, it's tentacly and sharp teeth, uh, but they kill it, bring it inside, take a look at it. We do get a nice little like me- minimal sort of autopsy sequence. They touch it and it moves. You know, again, we've seen this before, but what you're seeing here is a really well executed version of that, and, and we get it again. So as they they continue on their journey, they start realizing that. It's it's very possible that the thing that they found that they are so terrified by might actually be like the baby version of what's really out there. And so in a in a in a film that has a lot of really bad TJ Miller moments this is the one scene where I'm going to give him a little bit of a pass because as they're sitting there listening to all these like crazy sounds outside that the very tiny like cargo elevator that they're all shoved inside. He looks at the pressure door and he's like, should we close that? <laughs> Is that a door that we should close? I'm going to, cl- I'm, I'm going to close it. I think we should close that. And, and it's, it's very, again, it's very, na- it's like a good natural moment for a character like that to be like the guy who's like, you know, I, I think we should close that door. That would be a good choice right now. And I'm going to do it. Uh, so it's, it's, more restrained, which is, you know, good. But this was one of the few sequences that I found him sort of tolerable. Um, maybe it's because he's he's coming to his end <laughs> very quickly. Uh, <laughs> Don't but, have to suffer much longer. Right. But so they, they, uh, they do realize that there's something else out there. Something hits like this porthole window that's at the, that's above them which then draws their attention up and they see the Kepler's reactors explode. And so as the, the reactors explode, they get dropped. So they're again, this is another really good action sequence. And, and one of the things that I want to say unequivocally, 
no reservations. Absolutely 100% true. I think Eubanks' handling of the the sort of insane action sequences in this film are great. Like they look good, they're chaotic and frenzied, but I never really had problems understanding what was going on. A lot of the reviews I read, they were like, I I didn't know what was happening. It was all so confusing. Um, I didn't get that at all. I think maybe they just don't watch enough action movies. I thought this was very, very coherent. Yeah, it's just, it works. It's, they're not complex action sequences. I mean, it's really just characters moving. I mean, that's all they're doing. There's no fighting at this point. They're not shooting anything. They're not throwing things. They're not blowing things up. It's literally just, you need to traverse a space. And, and I think Eubanks is really good at conveying that, especially once we get outdoors, you know, quote unquote, like under, you know, actually in the trench sequence and they're trying to move across the bottom of the, the, you know, the bottom of the trench. It's obviously filmed on a sound on a sound stage, right? They're, these suits are not actually underwater. There's no way they would do that with them. So they're being shot on a sound stage, which means that all of the water and water effects and and the stuff floating, all of that is is you know CG and maybe some some practical effects in the moment. And I think for the most part, it works. It's it's pretty good surprisingly enough right it's it's okay and and i mean again i've i kind of have like a weird thing for this subgenre of of film because the abyss in it took forever to produce so everybody knew that james cameron was making a movie set underwater that was kind of scary and so a bunch of other people made <laughs> movies set underwater that were kind of scary the two most prominent being deep star six and leviathan and, uh, you know, one had Peter Weller in it. The other one had Daniel Stern. And, and you know, I, I enjoy those films a lot. They're, they're very different. They're very goofy. But I've seen people try to make a soundstage after the fact look like water. And generally, you can't, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's why James Cameron forced all those poor people to live inside... 80 foot deep water tanks for six months while they were filming the abyss is because James Cameron looked at the effects and said, the only way this is going to look like it's underwater is if uh, you're underwater. So get underwater, please. Yeah. But this film did not have that. And, and there's no way they would have done that. So I, I must applaud the convincing nature of the underwater sequences. They look good. And, and I am, convinced enough that they are underwater which for a film like this i think is a win right because it could look like it's just people running around on a soundstage and and it doesn't which is a plus it looks remarkably water-like <laughs> yes and again it's not perfect you can definitely nitpick it and and have issues with it no doubt but i think for the most part I was convinced enough, especially in the moment. So again, we we've reached, uh, I guess we're on step C of our journey. We've, we've made it across the, the trench, at least a, a chunk of it. And uh, then they're able to get into like a, an underwater tram, I guess it almost looks like a mining cart that would be used to transport cargo from, you know, point A to point B. So they get on that. 
and they start sort of trucking through and the facility has been damaged enough that they can't continue on that. So they've got to continue on foot. But now the, the eldritch horror component of the film starts to really get ramped up, right? The, the creature has been revealed our, our opening credit sequence and all the weird happenings that the company couldn't explain are now starting to come into focus because this is the, this is the minds of Moria, right? They dug too deep. They went down too far and they found something, something dangerous. Something and I evil. don't think the movie needed to do this. I don't think no, it needed I- to say it this way. No, uh, honestly, this could have just been underwater disaster. People try to escape and this movie would have been fine. It really would have been. Um, but we we need a creature. They, they wanted it to be a, a kind of creature feature, if you will. And that's fine. It but, is. You know, I just, the explanation was not necessary. I think, I want to believe that audiences are smart enough to have extrapolated and and realized that this was a we dug too deep without us having to have the little oh no <laughs> right. I, I just I wish the movie hadn't done that it's it's a it's a bit unnecessary uh, I mean it almost feels like thematically they might have been trying to build you know something about ecology something about nature I, it, again it's this is not a film that's especially concerned about messaging. When, I, and I, I, the problem with that is none of the people in this story have anything to do with that. None of them were here pushing the limits and boundaries of science. So we're just we're just dealing with these very personal, very small stories. And then to have it balloon out into this, you know, huge company, Wayland Utani conspiracy, that felt like the first time it was copying one of its references. In a way that I didn't yeah. like. Yeah, because this doesn't have Ash, right? This doesn't have Bishop, right? We don't yeah. have the connection back to the big conglomerate company's, you know, secret agenda. This is, it feels like maybe they could have done that with the captain. Like the captain had at least some idea that, you know, there were additional things going on and he covered it up. It's possible his his senility, his, because uh, there is that stuff in the opening credits about like, whatever they discovered is having an effect on the people who are down there close to it on their brains. And I'm convinced that that's an abandoned plot thread. Exactly. It's something that I think they meant to develop, but then when the film got sort of shelved and and sort of got tanked, that got dropped in, in favor of, you know, shaving five to 10 minutes off the runtime. Um, but their, their current problem is that the tunnel that they were traveling through is collapsed and rapidly filling with water, so they have to go through a small underwater section of it in order to, to get to the next, you know, to get to the other side so that they can keep going. And uh, T.J. Miller finds a moon pie. Uh, I guess moon pie paid a little bit of, uh, paid a little bit of money to, to get in the movie. Somebody at the, the moon pie marketing department said, hey, underwater, Kristen Stewart. Someone Action in film. The moon pie Twitter. It's it's moon pie, baby. But uh, so this this sequence is again, it's well done. Uh, they they kind of bring people through one at a time. The the suits are, are bulky and it's tight, so 
they're they're struggling sort of getting everybody through and and tj miller is left alone on on his side which of course is setting up his imminent demise yay and as he is is preparing to make his his move you know things are closing in we get some some yells some screams some metallic clanging in the background as he's waiting for his turn uh then they lose radio contact right they hear him struggling and and you know seeing something and and again the sequence is effectively shot everybody's sort of on their side they're doing do we go back to get him uh and then he kind of shows up and they start pulling him through and uh by the time they get him to their side he's been been caught um and so this i I don't know. I, I thought this sequence was pretty good. I mean, I, I'm never going to be too upset about seeing TJ Miller die, but this one, I, I think it was kind of brutal. It's, it's rough, right? I mean, the violence in this has been sudden, but, but violent and brutal up until this point, but this is, this is really rough. Um, because as they're they're trying to sort of extricate him from this this portal, he gets grabbed again. I, I guess we hadn't really talked about it, but T.J. Miller is part of his characterization, I guess. Um, he has like a tiny rabbit, uh, Lil Paul. I guess he did calls not him. understand that. Did yeah, understand. Uh, again, maybe it's an abandoned plot thread. There does seem to be this connecting element between all of these characters that it, they're all they all have ties to to things and people and so i think tj miller who doesn't have like real ties maybe his his emotional tie to you know this stuffed bunny is supposed to be something it also brings up the idea of artifacts that you take back to the surface which chris and sir had mentioned before if they found if they found something on the dead body in the escape pod, it would bring a piece back so they could take it to the surface as an, an artifact, right? So Yeah, and give it to the family or something. Right, it almost feels like a kind of burial at sea um, kind of concept. Again, maybe a dropped plot thread that they intended to develop and, and just didn't go anywhere. But, uh, you know, so it, basically Paul dies by being torn in half. Yeah. The, the creature... Uh, well, not fully torn in half. It it rips his leg off, and we get uh, a really good like blood helmet uh, filling scene. Yes. Uh, his his leg gets torn off, and and the blood sort of rushes to the top of the the pressure suit, and and they just kind of let his body go. And we pause for a moment. Right, the film has been very swift. We really haven't had much downtime at all. And what basically happens next, they make it to this, this exploratory station that's connected to the drill and they are able to identify that the drill has been torn to shreds. Basically this, this massive underwater drill that's designed to drill at these incredible pressures, incredible depths has been, been ripped apart by something. So again, the Eldritch horror component is getting, you know, sort of pushed up. But he, uh, there is a nice moment in this scene where the uh, the captain like notices a a 
fracture in one of the, the windows and he kind of pushes on it with his thumb and it just spiders out. That was terrifying. And and he's kind of looks around, he's like, huh, yeah, we probably shouldn't stay here very long. That's that seems like a bad idea. Um, but the main thing they establish is that there's uh, whatever technology they're using for their bee breathers, it seems like some kind of, I don't know, heavy water concept. Uh, they need to refresh those or else they're not going to be able to make it the rest of the way across the surface. And, you know, the character work being done here is, again, very minimal. I'm not going to give the film a ton of credit for it. Uh, the communications guy tries to sacrifice himself, say, so just leave me here because we don't have enough resources to make it across. And Nora just won't have it, which, again, you know, she's committed to saving everybody, even people who necessarily don't necessarily want to be saved. And and so they make the the next trek across the bottom, which I, I do like that the first trek, they didn't really know about the creatures yet. So it was scary just because, oh, we're deep underwater and things can go wrong. Rodrigo's suit just exploded. Now this sequence is is more tense because of there's something out here. Right, like the the danger is ratcheted up, which I think is a smart choice on Eubank's part. Um, so they're they're traveling outdoors again, and again some nice water effects. You know, they they look good. Um, a lot of artificial lighting. You know, you can kind of see the CG lighting that's being done, but you know, I think it's a fairly convincing effect. I feel pretty good about it, and. They're still trying to get to is it Roebuck Station, I think is what they say. And it's and that's that's the one that's got the additional, you know, potential escape pods. And you know, they're basically just like hands on each other. It, it feels a bit like being outside the Nostromo in uh the original alien. You know, they can't see anything. It's it's just slow moving, just kind of take your time, walk. And then they turn on the infrared cameras on their helmets because the light's so bad. And what did you think of, of that sequence? Why didn't they do it before? <laughs> um, exactly. It seems like a pretty efficient way. Because, I mean, they haven't been able to see at all, ever. Right. But now, now it's too bad. It's too dark. It just, it would have been helpful if we'd had that before, but yeah. I mean, it's cool. It looks neat. Um, it oh, sets yeah. up, you know, a couple of good scare sequences. Uh, Smith or, or the communications guy, he gets taken by something and kind of dragged. And so they're, they're trying to hunt him down and see if they can find him. And you know, it's, it's good. It's, it's a bit frenzied. It's, it's kind of scary. Um, He's he's in rough shape. He was in rough shape to begin with, and now he's become this this liability, right? And so you can feel that, like the film at one point, the finished version I don't think really plays with this, but it almost feels sort of like a cold equations kind of thing. Like it, Nora yeah. has has consistently had to make life or death decisions, right? Like right at the beginning, she decides to not save the rest of the people in that compartment, save herself. Um, you know, Rodrigo, she tries to save him by not opening the pressure door, that doesn't work. So, you know, we get 
this idea that, you know, Nora's trying to save everybody, but at some point, you know, you're going to have to, people are going to die and you're going to have to let them go. Um, then we get, I don't know, this whole sequence, things get, get a lot more CG heavy and not necessarily to the film's benefit, <clears throat> but the captain gets grabbed by a thing. And it's really the first time we kind of see the larger version of it. It's very quick. But you can definitely see a sort of humanoid shape grab him and sort of drag him away. And the captain gets kind of stuck on one of the, I guess it's a lighting platform or something. I don't really know. But again, Nora, you know, feels compelled to try and save him. He's tangled up and unable to free himself. And I, I don't know. I mean, the these all are pretty cool. Like the sequences are good. They're tense. Yeah, Everything you know, is, is swift and sort of motivated. I mean, nothing in the film feels extraneous. Like there's, there's just so little to criticize because the film is moving so fast. Right. And intentionally. So like the film is definitely very interested in keeping you moving. Right. You know, because I think there are definitely things that if you want to slow down and spend time thinking about, yeah, they're kind of dumb. Like, why didn't you just use the infrared helmet cams from the start? What what would have been the harm in doing that? You know, that kind of thing. But I think the movie just is is so skillfully paced and, and carefully designed to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You don't really get enough time to think about it. But really what we're building to in this sequence, Nora, as, as she's alone and trying to help the captain, comes you know, sort of face-to-face -face with one of the adult versions of these creatures. And then we get like a, a really good moment when the creatures, you know, just kind of is trying to suck her helmet off. Uh, it opens up its mouth and just sort of puts it down over her whole helmet, and, and we get to see the shot of her inside as it's you know sort of like all over her and stuff and it's again it, horrific. it is is very cool right it's good it's a nice sequence good effect um the cg's not too bad but then the next problem is that they get they're basically getting dragged to the surface and they're getting depressurized too quickly so nora and the captain are kind of holding on to each other she's trying to bring him back down and the captain basically says, you, you just got to let me go, right? You have to let me, me die. So this feels a little bit like, I don't know, gravity maybe. You know, there's some sequences like that yeah. in there. Um, we, again, in, in sci-fi, you know, space action movies, we've seen this, right? The, the noble sacrifice by the captain or, or whomever. But we, we get another sort of suit implosion as he, you know, depressurizes and Nora it falls. Really cool. <laughs> it looked cool. And we get there are a couple of times in this movie during those big explosions where we get sort of a, a speed ratcheting effect where everything slows down for a second. We saw it right at the beginning when Nora's uh, the door sort of implodes and she gets thrown back. And, and he does it a couple of times in this movie, usually when it's supposed to be this huge you know, implosion, explosion, you know, I guess really more implosion that is intended to sort of really, um, you know, sort of knock these characters out, right? Like they, they get completely decimated by these explosions. 
and and that happens again. So Nora wakes up back on the surface. Her suit's going crazy. She's got flashing lights everywhere telling her that her suit's potentially compromised or you know, at least in trouble. She starts seeing, I think there's still a creature out there, like some kind of big octopus-looking thing. I don't know if it's supposed to be one of the bad creatures or just a regular octopus, but she gets spooked by it. And Whatever it is, it's deep-sea horror. It's deep-sea horrors, baby. Um, but she's separated from Emily and Liam. Right, they're, they're somewhere else, right? She got pulled um, too far away. But fortunately, she's close to the drill, I guess. Is it the shepherd station? It's like some kind of drill. Yes. And so she's able to get inside, takes her helmet off, because um, her I guess her oxygen was going low. And she's alone. Um, and so, you know, Stuart here is... Again, she's not really given much to work with. There's not a ton going on here, but she breaks down, right? She, we get to see her sort of finally deal with all of the the terrible things that have been happening, and she's, I mean, she's acting the hell out of it. I can't say she's not. She's, you know, shivering and and I guess she's supposed to be in the shower. I think that's where she's at. I, I don't know if. Uh, it's that or some kind of decontamination chamber that they're supposed to go through when they take their suits off. I'm, I'm really not sure, but it's um, effective. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's good. It's a good moment, right? We, we need to see this character who has been very realistic, very practical, sort of break down a little bit. Again, it's, it's a bit diehard, right? It's, it's John McClane sort of talking to Al I don't yeah. know, man. I don't know if this is going to work. You know, you got to tell my kids, you know, that it's that kind of thing. And, um, you know, she is trying to get a hold of the other two potentially remaining crew members, tells them where she is. This particular drill site has been abandoned, I guess. So it's, it's older tech and, um, you know, stuff that you haven't uh, seen in, you know, it's got like some company posters that are kind of from an older marketing. It's got all this stuff about like, was it working alone is against company policy. Yeah. And different stuff, you know, again, a little bit of Wayland Utani, a little bit of, you know, nice textural stuff. stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then she finds, you know, the, like some older remnants of the captains. Um, the, I guess like his old locker, like he, he wasn't necessarily back from a time that he wasn't necessarily the captain. He was, was just a guy who worked on the station. And so she finds his stuff and, you know, in the pocket of his jumpsuit, which has an American flag on it, which I think is funny because Vincent Castle is definitely not American. Uh, he has like hardcore French accent for the whole film, but you know, whatever. But so in his suit, he finds that, uh, I guess it's like a death announcement for his daughter. And we find that, that when he said that she was 14, that's because she died when she was 14. And so, again, you know, <laughs> sort of a tragic backstory, not unlike Nora's tragic backstory. And, you know, we, we finally get some answers, if you want to call them that about uh, the captain and, and why he was so 
a little sad that it comes this late. Yeah, and it, and it comes through her finding, you know, an artifact in a locker, which is not a bad way to do it, but it, it seems like something the captain could have just said. I, I do you know? like that it was carrying through the theme of her taking things from the dead, things that belonged to them, that that explains why she would have looked through the locker, but that seems like a very laborious setup for something that could have just been a nice character moment. Right. And, and the captain is, you know, he's gone now. There's, there's no closure here. It's really just closure for Nora kind of understanding where he was coming from and why he wasn't interested necessarily in, in going home, so to speak. There's, there's nothing up there for him anymore, uh, which maybe is meant to sort of thematically set Nora up for the same thing that there's, there's nothing up there for her anymore, which, you know, sort of comes to a head here in a little bit, but she decides that she needs to make it to the, the Roebuck drill. That's where she needs to get to. And her rebreather is out. So she decides to grab an older uh, EVA suit so that she can go out onto the surface again. And she arms herself this time, which again, very, very aliens, right? Ripley sort of setting herself up to have some weaponry to combat whatever she might uh, sort of encounter out there. In this case, I think it's like a saw or something. Um, but we get some more voiceover during this sequence. And it's it's coming from the characters, so it's not bad, right? She's basically kind of honing in on Emily, who is is sort of lost it a little bit, and she's just gibbering about research that she had done and and things that were going on. And and we find out that she and the the communications guy were kind of kind of sweet on each other a little bit, um, which is you know it's fine. It doesn't really do anything at this point in the movie. It's not it's, really going to change anything. It just feels anything. like an unfinished thread, like something that we could have developed earlier and we didn't. Right. I think the point might be that, you know, we're we're coming to the end game here and, and ultimately Nora is going to make a decision to sacrifice herself to save these two people. And I think the idea is supposed to be that just like the captain, you know, Nora doesn't really have, I don't want to say a life, but she doesn't really have anything on the surface that could take her somewhere else. Whereas Emily and this other guy, you know, they're sort of fresh. They're coming from something new and, and maybe they can go make something of their lives if they survive. I, I, I get the feeling that thematically there was supposed to be something like that in there. And, and I just don't know if that comes through. It gets kind of dropped. Maybe it was something that was meant to be explored more fully during the middle section, the second act of the film. But it doesn't really come across that way here. But, but Nora, fortunately, is able to sort of get Emily um, you know, back on track. They get up, and they're, they're going to head to you know, Roebuck Station uh, together. Which... You know, I, I'm I'm glad that we still have characters at this point. We do get a really 
we get a nice moment where Nora like basically just straight up says like, I'm really proud of you actually. Like you've, you've made it really far. You did really good. Um, like further than, than maybe even she expected you to yeah, make it. I totally would have expected you bite it by now. Which, you know, I think is a, that's a nice idea, you know? Well, then we kind of expected she would bite it. Yeah. It's, it feels a bit like that Ripley dodge, right? Like you thought that this girl was going to be the one who would buy it first thing, but she ends up being, you know, one of the ones that survives. So they, they've got Smith. Fortunately, they're kind of dragging his, dragging him across the surface. And we do get a, a bit of, a bit of character building here. And I think this is meant to galvanize Nora in her decision to, do whatever it takes to save Emily and um, Smith, I guess. Because she's talking about her dog and what her dog name is um, and all this different stuff and and find out that Emily and Smith actually have a bit of a history together. They know each other from up above. They would go diving together and that they actually do have a, a relationship, right? They're, they're kind of in love. And so, again, I think that all of this is meant to sort of help Nora ease, help ease Nora into the decision that she's about to make, which is to, to rescue these two young lovers, right? These, these two kids, these kids that have all this potential in the world, whereas me, a 34 year old Kristen Stewart, I just my life's over. Gosh, darn it. I, I already met nothing. the love of my life. Never have another one. You never have another one. And. <laughs> You know, so it's it's a bit shallow, but I, I think the film, you know, does an okay job attempting to to justify what's going on here. At least a little bit. And so we're we're really sort of in the last few minutes now. Again, this is a swift film. They're not wasting any time. But they reach Roebuck Station, which is in a state of disrepair itself, and we get probably one of the most this is a really, really good scene. Yeah. In this film, because as they approach the tunnel leading into the station, they discover that it is quite literally covered in these things, whatever they are, these eldritch horrors. Uh, they're hanging from the ceiling, kind of like bats, right? Um, it reminded know... me of the jellies in Finding Nemo. Yeah, or... a little bit like that. <laughs> um in a terror, a terrible science fiction yeah. film based on a really good book, uh, Sphere. Oh, uh, they do oh, something yeah. similar with the jellyfish in that. Um, Queen Latifah gets murdered by the jellyfish in in that film. <laughs> uh, again, I love that book. Sphere is one of my favorite books ever. I, I think Michael it's, Crichton, it's a, right? It's it was it was uh, pre Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton, if I'm not mistaken, like he was the book he might have written like one or two before Jurassic Park. It's all about math. It's all about math and extraterrestrial life and and how the government is sort of set up to deal with those potential eventualities and all this stuff. Cool. Um, the movie is awful, though. It's directed yeah. by Barry Levinson, has Dustin Hoffman in it. And, and Sharon Stone, right? It, yeah. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, it's, it's not good. But there is a scene where a whole bunch of floating jellyfish murder somebody, which is pretty good. In any case... Um, in, in a, a repeat of those, they have to sort of walk through the terrors. We get a great scare in the middle of it as the low oxygen sensor for <laughs> Emily's suit goes off. 
And then, uh, you know, just some nice jump scares and, and stuff in the way the, the creatures are sort of like pawing down, seeing if there's anything underneath them. And they, they find Nora kind of, and, uh, Nora's just encouraging Emily to, to take Smith inside and just, just go just do what they need to do. And these are very tense, right? I, I really like the in helmet stuff that they do in this movie. I think it's shot really tightly and very interestingly. Um, there are lots of, I mean, at this point, we've got lots and lots of movies and TV shows that have cool, like spacesuits and helmet shots, right? Like the Expanse is like nothing but cool space shoot helmet shots. But they very rarely put the camera inside the helmet like right in the actor's face. That doesn't happen a ton. Uh, so a bit in Ridley Scott films, uh, but this one, the camera's just right there and it's really effective. It's very claustrophobic and, and cool looking. Um, so once again, Kristen Stewart's it's trying to chow down on her helmet. And uh, this time she is able to, you know, sort of fend it off with uh, some of the weaponry that she <laughs> that she acquired and uh, man, it's just a cool, it's just a cool moment, right? She's just being crushed and compressed by this thing. And they use uh, the film uses both of its, if it's F bombs all at once um, mm -hmm. and, and she kills it and then sort of like extricates herself from the body in a really that interesting was, way. It was really cool. It's very cool looking. Um, again, looks like a, a pretty deft mixture of, CG and practical, you know, there was definitely something there that she was crawling out of inside of the suit, but at the same time, there's a lot of CG manipulation to make it look a little bit more raw and visceral. But of course she makes a whole bunch of noise when she kills this thing and it starts waking up all of the other ones. Um, so I, I don't know. All of this works like every bit of it works. It's very cool. She's getting ready to try and, you know, load her gun to, to fire into this group again. And, and then they all just kind of leave. They get like sucked up into the, the air. And, and then we pull back and we realize that it, it wasn't actually a tunnel after all. <laughs> that was one of the many, many tentacles of a much, much, much larger thing. And they've actually been fighting, not the babies, but like maybe the, the mid-level tadpoles. The drones. Of this, the drones of, of this queen. Right. So again, the, the aliens uh, sort of coming in here. It's very Lovecraftian in design. I will yes. give it that. I don't feel like the xenomorphs are. I feel like they're no. a very singular design. And you can tell when something is riffing off of you know, H.R. Geiger was uh, an artist unto himself. Absolutely. Um, but this, this does feel like something out of, you know, a Lovecraft art book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very Cthulhu. Um, you know, maybe a bit messier, not quite as defined and it, as he is in many of the, the sort of artistic representations of that. But it's, it's meant to be the eldritch horror at the bottom of the sea. Like, that's what's going on here. Um, so it, it sort of slams a tentacle down, causes another explosion, Nora gets blown back, Emily's able to drag her into the facility and, you know, sort of, sort of save her life right there at the end. 
And, you know, so we get one last little like brief moment as we're checking in with, with everybody. And uh, Nora is, is trying to get them to escape pods. All right. That's what they've been going for, for this entire film. So they were coming to Robux station to begin with, try and find a working escape pod to get back to the surface. And in doing so, they've discovered, you know, this, this horrible, horrible thing that is, is certainly going to interfere with any escape pod that takes off to the surface. There is no way that's just going to, you know, fly by. Um, what do you think of the decision to have Case do running around in her underwear for the remainder of the sequence? Unnecessary, but it doesn't bother me because at the same time, they do set up that the suits are supposed to be tight. They set that up in the film. Mm-hmm. I think I would have been upset if they hadn't had that little throwaway line where she says, lose the pants, they won't fit in the suit. Yes, um, they do. They do clarify it again. There's a piece of me that thinks that this is a guy who knows his Ridley Scott. And of course, yeah. very, very famously at the end of the there's original lots alien of underwear, there's lots of underwear. Sigourney Weaver is, is settling in for her long winter's stasis nap. I always and, thought it was just like how I always see spiders whenever I'm naked and about to take a shower. That'll be the moment that I see a spider. I yes. always felt like Alien just nailed it. It's like that is exactly when you would see the alien. It's when you're in your underpants. Exactly. It's it's vulnerability, right? Oh. It is it is enhancement of your vulnerability. I think it has become less of a common tactic, rightly so. But it at the end of Alien, it does increase the tension um, because she is... She's not ready. She's not prepared. Here, though, and, it really doesn't. Yeah, but it, that doesn't seem to be its functions here. I mean, Kristen Stewart is a very, she's a very attractive woman, and so it's fine to have your actor utilize that part of their skill set if you want to look at it in a sort of rigid, weird way. But, you know, the it does, you know, make her vulnerable. I, I think it it is justified in the story you know that they're getting in and out of these suits that don't have any kind of wiggle room for for traditional clothing so i mean that, that's all fine it, it's all good it, it just it feels a bit out of place um at this point in the film right she's i don't know it, it was just something when i watched it the first time i was like oh okay all right i i don't, I don't know if i needed this it's um, very uncreative yeah it's just it's it feels a little bit it feels a little bit like a, a decision that that somebody probably should have been like, ah, you know, let's let's have some pants in the decompression chamber. If if it really, really is a problem that you can't get in and out of these suits if you're wearing pants, then they'd probably have a stack of sweatpants there or something, you know, just in case. Or like, you know, something that I would like to see movies take advantage of that I think would be a different sort of wardrobe accessory would be like a bodysuit. You know, yeah, something that's just different from the standard underpants and, and sports bra fair. I don't know. I just I felt like that was eh, I've seen that before and I didn't care for that. Right. And I'm not I, I, I don't want to get, you know, sort of bogged down in in that. I don't think the film is really interested in amping up the sexy like that's not really what's going on here. And that's fine. 
it, it was just something that I I was not expecting her to be sprinting through these hallways in <laughs> for this last you know few moments of the film like basically in a, a bra and, and panties. But you know here we are. She does have some kind of like compression leggings on. I will say that like they they do have that there. But uh, so the the problem right the the final problem that they must solve is that there are only two working escape pods. There is a third that's kind of like sort of working that maybe could be fixed, but they really don't have time. And so Nora gets them in. <laughs> There's a great sequence. Emily's trying to fight back. No, 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 no. We can we can find a way. We can find a way. And she just punches her in the face. She <laughs> belts her across the face. It's like, no, sit down. But then the the final step, the last component here is she realizes that um, this this creature, this monster, this eldritch horror from beyond the deep is is probably going to destroy the escape pods. Right. It's it's going to kill them. And so she has to do something to stop it. So she sits down. She's kind of like in a moment of defeat, I guess, or, or at least resignation that this is is what's going to happen. And she's just kind of okay with it. And then the creatures start like you know, you know, trying to break in through the window. They're they're, you know, she sees the the big creature sort of moving up to the surface, and realizes what's going on. And uh, so this is her her moment, I guess. This is the the, the climax of the film as she makes this decision because she sees that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of this, these smaller things, the really dangerous things attached to the larger thing and they get released and they're chasing down the pods. And then we come back to the voiceover, which again, if the voiceover at the beginning had had any sort of impact or resonance, uh, I'm, I might have wanted more of it, but it was bewildering then, and quite frankly, this is bewildering as well. Because she's talking about feelings, I, I think, and sometimes you got to stop the feeling and just do the doing or something. I did not understand anything that she was saying. It yeah. If this feels like it was written well after the fact and just they needed something to, to lay over this. Somebody said you needed some kind of voiceover. And they and need the triumphant music swell. Right. You know, you need the character resolving, you know, and she kind of looks longingly at the escape pod one last time as if, you know, like maybe I could fix it. Like, I, I don't know exactly what she's doing. She seems completely she's okay with the experiencing an emotion of some sort. But you got to stop feeling and you got to start doing. Doing is better than feeling. Don't you understand? <laughs> but then uh, Nora, the engineer, which I, I do love that it was established that she she's very capable. She understands how this works. Um, she decides to, to blow the Roebuck station's core, much like Kepler station's core had been blown. And, you know, she's got this nice little monitor that tells her the exact blast radius of the yeah. explosion. And her friends in the escape pods are well past it. But the, all of the terrible monsters are going to get murdered. And uh, then we get some more, like, you know, pressurized exploding stuff. Some hallways blown apart. And, you know, then a large explosion that seemingly consumes, you know, the, the creature. 
Um, no way of knowing, of course, if it's completely destroyed, but we can kind of presume. And then we get a couple of sort of euphoric shots. These, this reminded me a lot of Sunshine. Yeah, um, I got that vibe too. You know, there's there's a bit of that, like the the station explodes and and there's like the you know all the water is like rising up behind her, and and we get this nice slow mo shot of her, obviously happy, right? You know, it's it's triumphant. It's it's a victory. She won against this creature, which is is good. Um, and maybe there's something there. Maybe. Maybe she could hop in the broken escape pod and the explosion will rocket it to the surface if they want to do underwater too. I don't know. But uh, something tells me it ain't going to happen. But then, unfortunately, the credit sequence is much like the... The end credit sequence is much like the opening credit sequence and we get a bunch more like newspaper headlines of the company covering up the accident and the two employees who survived being silenced. And, and, you know, it kind of defeated the movie. Yeah. Like we get it right. Like you don't have to tell us that. Like, of course, that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, ending on, on Nora's, you know, triumphant victory over the creature is, is probably good enough. And I it's not it much, been, but I thought so. it would have been nice to, to have something like, I don't know, like a news broadcast of the two people, the two survivors, you know, being found or something. Mm-hmm. Just to let us know that they made it, but all of the conspiracy stuff—I don't know—that was that was just unnecessary. Or maybe, maybe Peter Weller shows up. And he's floating on the surface, and he gets a pipe bomb that he throws into the creature's mouth. Like one creature that makes it up, could happen. and he throws. <laughs> Sorry, that's from uh, another movie, um, but it would be awesome. So, I mean, that's that's really the end of the film, and it's it's so swift and and just absolutely compressed to its core elements that you know, even though it it ends semi tragically. I mean, our main character dies, um, but she dies sacrificing herself nobly for others, and she kills a giant monster in the process. So that's that's cool. Um, I I think the film. I guess I'll go ahead and say my, my one thing for the film that I think would actually make it more palatable is for her to survive. Um, I, I don't think it's necessary to tell this story and have her live, but I think it would have been much more palatable and much more in the mold of films like this. If, you know, she makes the decision to blow the station, she runs to the escape pod. She does find a way to fix it. And then the last couple moments of the film are the, you know, the, the, riding the the spaceship up while you know the the reactor explodes on lv426 and and everybody you know the white light goes out and everything's shaking but you know she makes it like i I think that that might have been a much more audience palatable ending for a film like this and something that leaves you feeling you know kind of good so um I guess let's let's go ahead and get into the the end game here and and talk a bit about you know sort of our overall impressions of underwater. Um, I'm pretty positive on this film. I think it's it's really good. It's it's well designed. It's smartly directed. It moves so swiftly that the problems that the film has just kind of fall by the wayside, which generally I I think is 
is bad, right? If a film only works because you can't, it moves so fast you can't pay attention. It's transformed. Right, and that's not good. But this film is more... The problems with it from a story standpoint are pretty minor, right? There's not a ton of stuff here. I mean, the, the entire conceit is a bit off. But because those minor things aren't necessarily going to get in your way, the pace of this film just kind of keep things, keeps things moving. Um, I would say it could be scarier. There could be scarier moments. There are really only like four or five quote-unquote scary moments in the film. It's very much more action than it is horror. Um, or, you know, I don't even know if I'd call it a horror film, but it certainly has some moments, I guess. But um, it's it's one of those things that I think the pace is good, the the overall approach is good. Like, it's just, it's a smartly designed film, uh, both in its its physical execution, but also in its construction. And they knew what they had, they knew what they were trying to do, and they didn't really beat around the bush. And that's incredibly refreshing. And that, that's really the word that I, I thought of when I was done watching it. It's just, that was refreshing. I haven't seen a movie that is just what it is like that in a long time, where it's just, it's not, it's not going out of its way to overcomplicate what is a very straightforward, plot-driven action film. Yeah, and that's that's fine. You know, we we don't get those anymore. You know, everything's got to be overly complicated and have some kind of like weird twist. And and while this film does have a bit of a twist in that it's you know underwater eldritch horrors that's causing this problem, it that's it, right? There's nothing else, right? It's not like we've got like a globe-trotting conspiracy running at the same time while they're underneath water fighting on the drill like you know there's there's none of that stuff that that we see in a modern action film that they feel that they have to have like we're not flashing to Nora's parents house where they're like what's going on with my little girl here's our here's our dumb dog right you know like there's none of that kind of stuff it's just this very swift very straightforward push 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 action film and that that is again like it's refreshing it's fun because there's nothing else going on. And it it's having a good time with what it's doing. Uh, there were a lot of reviews that I read that said Kristen Stewart just looked bored through this whole thing, which I, I get, but that's kind of her shtick. So I, I don't really know if that's her fault. Um, I, I don't know if I wanted her to look exuberant, though. I thought she looked tired. Right. But which, I, I you know, got the impression the character was quite tired. Yeah, I, I kind of... I, my read on it is that she's she's getting ready to go to bed when the film starts. Like, I know she's getting ready to put shoes on, but it almost feels like she's coming off shift. She's either starting her shift or she's coming off shift, one or the other. And and if she's coming off shift, then she's probably tired. If she's getting on shift, she just woke up. So, yeah, there's there's like this, aside from all of the tension and, and terrible things that are happening, like there's there's definitely issues going on around her work life. Right. And, and the, the sort of stresses of that, you know, so I, I guess to address the the elephant in the room, which is, you know, is this just an alien knockoff? I'm going to go with no, because to me, a knockoff at this point is like what Asylum does. Right. Like I, we have an established film or an established film genre that we want to exploit. 
right? We want to take what people know from that thing and transfer it onto our thing in the hopes that somehow they'll, they'll give us the same credit and they'll watch us like they would that, you know, it's, it's like, you know, back when there was such thing as, as movie stores, right. You would go to these places and they would have like, you know, transformers to revenge of the fallen. And then sitting right next to it would be like, you know, Atlantic rim or something <laughs> from the asylum. And, and people would be like, Oh, that looks interesting. Or transmorphers or whatever dumb series they had for that. Yeah. You know, that's a knockoff, right? That is, is attempting to exploit a genre film. That's well known for your, your personal gain. This doesn't feel like that. This feels like somebody much like us who grew up with these movies and loves them and cares about the, te- the, the filmmaking that went into them and the style and presence of them and then wanted to do that. And I cannot think that that's bad, right? I mean, it, honestly, that's, that's what like Quentin Tarantino does. He just does it at such a high level and with such skill that people give him a pass, right? They say, oh, well, it's cool because he's making it his own thing. Well, this film is trying to do that too. It's not doing it as successfully, but I doubt very seriously that Eubank had the blank check and complete and total creative control that somebody like Quentin Tarantino gets to have. Yeah. Um, You know, he's still making a picture. Well, at the time he was making a picture for a studio that wanted specific things. And, I I see it more just as a loving tribute that is is absolutely treading those same that same ground. And that's fine. Like I'm excited to see those kinds of things. And I, I would like to see more of them, especially if they're executed at this high level. Um, which I, I really do feel like that that's the one thing that cannot be uh, overstated about this film is that it is extremely well done. I mean, for this and this is his second this is his second fi- film. It's the only the second movie he's made. He had a couple of short films, but like The Signal and this, that's it. And, and that's remarkable to me. I mean, James Cameron made Piranha 2. Hey. <laughs> Before hey. he Let's made... on the classics yeah. here. Yeah, well, no. <laughs> Lance Henriksen is just amazing yeah. in that film. Um, You know, it, you get a couple of, you know, just okay movies. And, and I feel like this is definitely trending on the... the way better than okay side uh and it's fun if you're a fan of genre films sci-fi monsters you know whatever your particular arrangement or mixture may be there's a lot to like here and it's it's effectively done um and it's so rare to see it done well like you know there's a lot of you know crap sci-fi on netflix now that's pretty good and tries to do this kind of thing some of it better than others but this, this I, f- I think, is, is a cut above those things. Right? They've got the budget, mostly. They've got some star power, small cast, tight working group. Just very cool. And, and again, I, I, you have never seen a, a suit explode underwater like you've seen in this film. <laughs> You'll see it a couple times, and it's great every time. Really good. Uh, so again, my one thing, let Nora live at the end. How about you? My one thing, I thought about this long and hard, and I would like to see TJ Miller's character and Rodrigo's character combined into mm. one 
and then give more screen time to those little character moments that were missing so that maybe we learn things about the captain and Nora. And we don't have to sacrifice the running time of the film because I don't want to add anything to the film. I actually don't want it to be any longer. I also don't want it to be shorter. But T.J. Miller was sort of a waste. Um, I really liked Rodrigo's character and I would have liked to have mm-hmm. seen the comedic relief be brought to life in that guy. Um, that way, instead of having like those two deaths, we would have one death and it would be maybe a little more significant because we care a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it would have given them a little bit more space to develop the characters that were existing because we don't have to make time for TJ Miller to clown around. Yes. The, the TJ Miller clown around time is, is quite extensive. I would say on a, on a, a scale of, of eight TJ Millers, this is, this is nine TJ Millers. And yeah, that is unfortunate because it, it feels very out of place. Like I know you need somebody to bring comedic relief to tense moments. That's again, typical of an action film of this type, but his particular brand of, you know, tension relieving comedy doesn't really hang with the movie, right? Again, alien is a good place to look for this because there was tension relief right? There were comedic moments to sort of lighten the mood, but they were very down-tempo, to say the least. Um, and, and in Aliens, you know, Hudson's antics, while wonderful, because Bill Paxton is wonderful, sometimes they are a bit over the top, tonally, with that film. It pays off, and it's it does what it needs to do, but there's a reason why James Cameron cut that, check it out, we got these kind of weapons. Yeah. The, like there's a reason why that scene was cut from the theatrical version. Cause it's a little bit too much, right? Put it back in the director's cut. That's fine. Sure. Whatever. Cause you've got a lot of other time to flesh out the rest of the characters and it doesn't feel as overwhelming, but in right. a short film. Ooh. Yeah. It was a lot. And so, you know, you've got to kind of know that tone and, and Miller, even if it's what was scripted and I, I imagine it probably was, his delivery, his style is just not in keeping with the, the sort of tonal consistency of the film. Um, you know, and I, I would just have kind much... of felt like the those two characters doubled up on each other a little bit, almost to the point of making one of them pointless. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Rodrigo exists in the film to have one scene and then die. Yeah. That's it. Whereas, you know, and, and I like that death scene. It's a good death scene. But it might have been better to postpone that a little bit. We've already seen a lot of death. A lot of characters have lost their lives. You know, let them get a little bit further. And build you know, some relationships. And then take him, you know. Like, there's there's certainly some some different ways that could have been approached. And I think nothing would be lost in the film if we just got rid of the T.J. Miller character entirely. No, I, I can't imagine anybody being too too upset about it, especially given where he is right now. In the world. Um, You know, there's some other cute things. You know, if you're an alien fan, there is. uh, Oh, the computer is godmother instead of mother, um, which, again, feels very, very specific uh, because the the artificial intelligence slash computer that ran uh, the ship in Aliens, of course, mother, Um, you know, so there's some some other stuff there. But. 
I I really like this film's sort of loving nods to those movies and how they try to to sort of bring that you know cuz Alien is still a wonderful film but it is very old at this point right yes. um, it holds up brilliantly because Ridley Scott knew what he was doing and and you know his practical effects work is is second to none in that film but I wouldn't mind seeing something like that brought forward using modern technology. And I don't think underwater is that film. Uh, it's, it's still flawed in, in some fairly significant ways, but I, I really enjoy it. I, I'm a, a big fan of what this film is trying to do. And even if it fails on, on some points of execution, it still didn't diminish my enjoyment watching it. And it hasn't diminished my enjoyment. You know, I, I will watch this film again multiple times. Like it may become part of my regular staple of these kinds of movies. You know, the ones that I put on to watch by myself after my family has gone to bed. Like that's basically what this movie is. Um, and, and that's okay. Like it's, it's, these are the kind of movies that I watch for fun when I'm looking for something to, to, to sort of engage with. And, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't say how much I enjoyed it especially just kind of stumbling onto it and having no idea what it was when I, when I uh, grabbed a copy of it to, to check out. And that's, uh, that's always exciting, exciting to sort of discover something. And, and, you know, I know it's stupid to say discover a major theatrical release film starring Kristen Stewart, but you know, again, this movie was dumped. This movie was yeah. abandoned. Uh, I mean, nobody I cared. About- yeah, and and I've talked to a lot of people about it. It's like, oh, have you seen Underwater? And they're like, what? It's like, yeah, Underwater. It came out early 2020. Kristen Stewart. No. Like, you know, again, that's I, that may be one of the things that you know the loss of the video store has really hurt because you can't just go browse a shelf, look at the new releases, um, and everything's so carved up on streaming services now that if you you know this is on HBO Max at the moment, I, I I'm sure it'll shift to something else at some point. Um, but you know, you can't just go find stuff and be like, Oh, I'll check that out. I guess the red box, maybe you can do that a little bit, you know, that's very move on up to the red box. But again, there's, you know, five copies of a movie in there. And if it's not in, you know, what else are you going to do? So it's, it's one of those movies that I, I hope more people get a chance to discover. And I will, I will certainly lead into our final component here. This is like a, an 85 for me. Um, I think this is is really good, very solid, problematic at times, not necessarily the best film ever, not not by a long shot. But given the, the, the dismal reception and horrible financial failure that this film was, I, I think it's going to find an audience and it's going to be around for a long time. And I, I'm kind of sad that they didn't leave it open to come back to it. Like I, I think this would actually be something I wouldn't mind a sequel to. I agree. Um, my score is similar. I I had it at like an eighty-two, um, but you know we're roughly the same. <laughs> you know it's it's in the B category. Um, not really a B movie per se, but it it just felt very much of a time, and I kind of like that we might be trying out some of these eighties action movie ropes again and having fun with them instead of just pointing at them and saying that they're flawed and terrible and we shouldn't make movies like that anymore 
you know, there's nothing wrong with making a few movies like that. I would like to see the James Cameron style action come back. Yeah, I mean, and not as Avatar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've kind of gone to action movies are are more in the Michael Bay mold than than anything else right now, uh, at least for a time. I, I think and that's not, changing, and not even the good but, Michael Bay. That's, that's no, what's really no. sad. No, not even the good Michael Bay. Um, I don't know. Action cinema is kind of in a weird place. It seems like it's it's really highly regimented and segmented, and you've got your kung fu action cinema. You've got your your hardcore like military action, which is is usually just people running with guns and explosions. And it feels like sci fi action is is one of the few genres that has really just been relegated to Netflix. Like that's that's where those projects go and that's great because I'm sure people are discovering things there and finding cool things there, but it's, it's not enough, right? It's just, it's, it's not enough. You're never going to, I don't know if you're ever going to get widespread, like, Oh wow. Like this is, this is modern classic action cinema with a direct Netflix thing. I don't know. It just doesn't carry the same weight as a theatrically released product. Uh, at least maybe, not for me. Maybe in maybe. this this post pandemic world, it it could mean that. Um, but a lot would have to change about you know how we approach movies. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is a a paradigm shift, right? They just announced today that's uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, or whatever they're calling that, Godzilla versus Kong, is is coming direct to HBO Max in May, right? You can go see it in a theater if you want to, but you don't have to, right? Like. It's a it's a whole new world, baby. Like it's just, I I can't imagine it. Like I'm really glad I bought a big ass TV for uh, right before Christmas, because yeah. I think I'm gonna be watching a lot of, of you know direct to video movies at home, because that's that's what we're gonna have for a while, and and I guess that's okay. It's certainly something else though. Well, all right. Uh, well, I think what that means is we both recommend Underwater. And yes. you should definitely check it out. Uh, like I said, I, I watched it on HBO Max streaming, and uh, it is it is there for your viewing pleasure if you have access to it. Um, I'm sure you can find copies of it um, on, on disc, if that's your business. Um, and, uh, and you want to go, go grab a copy from your local Walmart or something, I'm sure it's around. Uh, I did just see that New Mutants just came out on uh, Blu-ray and, and 4K Blu-ray, which I thought was was interesting. I was hoping that there would be some additional stuff on. Apparently, it's just a couple of deleted scenes. I was really hoping for like an in-depth, like, "Hey, look how badly we screwed this movie over! Isn't it great?" No, but, I don't think they'll own up to that. No, no, they just dumped it out. The box art was terrible. Oh my gosh, it was so bad. <laughs> like they have a cool poster already. They should just use the poster, but now they they did this like key art promotional photo overlay is oh, so bad anyway uh that's what happens when you dump a movie out and you don't give two shits about it which is what happened with this one too so they're they're akin to each other uh but all right let's uh let's go ahead and wrap it up definitely go check out underwater if you get a chance it is a failure piece in the making another one from 2020 the forgotten year of movies uh did movies come out in 2020 i don't know but maybe hopefully sure um, were they good? 
apparently not that much no but we'll find out i'm uh i think we're gonna do some more uh 2020 forgotten gems if we can so because uh, this is definitely a, a year of movie failures. <laughs> maybe a year we could of do, forgotten everything. Maybe we could do Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently that was a, seen. Really, you haven't seen that yet. Ooh, maybe we should it. do that next week. Because uh, it's it was a failure. It made zero dollars uh, compared to its budget. Anyway, I'm sure they'll still call it a success because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. But there is no way that movie made its budget back. No chance in hell. I'll riff on Christopher. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll, we'll work that out and see if maybe we do that. Because I've kind of been itching to watch it again. Because uh, it's something. It's okay. definitely something. Uh, did you enjoy Bane's voice in uh, The Dark Knight Rises? Uh, uh, no. Um, no well, buckle up. Because everybody, oh. in, everybody in Tenet's wearing a mask and screaming at the top of their lungs for 60% of the runtime. Bam. Because I'm firmly of the belief that Christopher Nolan refuses to record dialogue on set, and he does it all ADR now, and it's easier to do if your character's in a mask. That's that is my firm belief that he is is tired of having the script ready on the day that they shoot things, and so instead he just has characters stand just stop with masks actors. on, and uh, then you just record the dialogue later. I think it's much easier that way. You should just use overturned mocks. Hey, if anybody and can do it, Christopher Nolan can. Have Matthew McConaughey ADR some lines over the mop. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> well, with that uh, wonderful dig on Chris Nolan, a truly wonderful Nolan dig for the ages, we will we'll come to a close. Uh, so where can you be found on the social media? I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. And I can be found on Twitter at T-Baskin. And of course, you can get us at... F Peace Theater on Twitter and failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you've got anything to say. Uh, we will see you next week where we take on another movie, hopefully one from 2020 that might have been forgotten on the scrap heap that was that year. But uh, we will find out next time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.